Yo, man. Yo. Open up, man. Yo, what you want, man? My constituents just caught me. You let them catch you? I don't know how I let this happen. Wait, where? The place next door, you know? Wait, I thought you ordered all the restaurants to close. Man, I don't know what to do. Just say it wasn't you. All right. Voter came in and they called me red-handed, eating at the place next door. Were there a lot of people there? Picture this, it was not that vacant, like a hundred peeps or more. How could I forget that I had Vandal Indo gatherings? Just a prime example of a really big hypocrisy. Understand we're not like other creatures Rules do not apply to us, we are the leaders Voters can't be trusted to be indoor eaters They are more contagious after all their mouth breathers Just tell them it's important to follow all the law How any violation might kill a grandma Why you do what you want, even pardon in-laws Mr. Mayor, how would you prefer your foie gras? Donated Sir, we saw you at a party It wasn't me Eating at the French Laundry It wasn't me You even had the clam chowder It wasn't me Sir, we got you on camera It wasn't me You said we can't be super spreading It wasn't me So I missed my brother's wedding It wasn't me You jailed a barber for hairdressing I have a wedding This is getting upsetting Photo gaming and they call me red-handed Eating at the place next door Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. with Telus is being brought to you live and recorded live on January 17th, 2021. The time right now just short of 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That was Remy, the great libertarian, right-leaning libertarian, but libertarian song parody artist. It's called It Wasn't Me, a parody of the Shaggy song about the hypocrisy of our leaders who tell us we can't go out and we can't do anything, but the law doesn't apply to them. Of course, the most famous instance of this was the French laundry visit by California Governor Gavin Newsom, but there are many others around the U.S. Just shows that stuff doesn't work. It's something that, in theory, you might think is correct, and then in practice, it just doesn't work. There's a lot of flaws to it. And even though I'm one of the most careful people you'll ever meet regarding COVID, the lockdowns, for the most part, are a mistake. Anyway, we won't get into that now. What we will get into is our show, Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We do this every week, usually on Saturday, sometimes on Sunday, sometimes on Friday. This time, it's on Sunday. So we're here on Sunday night right now. We did not do yesterday because I had a bad headache and did not go away, so I delayed it one day. Problem is, if I don't come into the show feeling 100%, then I can't do the show because it's so long. It's so long and it's mostly me talking the entire time. So it takes a lot out of you to sit there and talk for like six to eight hours. So unless I come in feeling good, then it's just something I can't do. If it was like a half an hour show, I could tough it out easily. But uh, the length of the show we do here... Uh, uh-uh. got to feel good when I start the whole thing. Towards the end, I don't have to feel good. In fact, often I don't, but at least at the beginning. Tonight, Trader Ruski said that he will probably come on towards the end of this show. He said he's going to sleep. So I don't know who he will have on tonight during the beginning and middle stages of the show, but you never know who will call in and join me. If you want to call the show tonight, the the phone number is 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line at 702-430-1808. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston in a cabin there. It's about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. 
and it forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. If you want to text me, you can text the main number of the show, 775-372-8355. I do check that at various times during the show and also before and after the show. I check it all week, and I probably will respond to your text, 775-372-8355. We have a free roll going right now. You have eight more minutes to get in there. It started at 945 Pacific Standard Time, and the prize this week is from a $50 prize pool. It is 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. This money came from Winona86, gave uh, $20, and $30 came from Duke Kaboom. We still have $20 left over of his to use. So uh, we will use up all his money. And I appreciate that $100 he sent to me. And, of course, uh, Winona86, he has sent me money twice in recent times. So $50 coming from the two of them combined to fund our free roll this week on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the rules of winning the free money. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. And make sure that you get your account validated and that you contact someone to validate you. Otherwise, you will not be able to play. So don't sign up like moments before the free roll or you will not be able to play that week because there will be no one around to validate your account. And we do that to prevent multi-accounting in the free roll. Okay. We have a chat room, which you can use to chat during the show. If you're listening live, just go press the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a form account in good standing. And you can go in there chat. It works on any device now. It is no longer a flash chat. If you want to listen to the show after it's on in the archives, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There is iTunes. There is Stitcher. TuneIn. There is Google Podcasts. We have Spotify. We have iHeartMedia. We have the Bullhorn app. These are all different apps you can download to listen to the show. You can also just play or download the MP3 of the show by just clicking on it. Just go to the Radio Archives Forum on Poker Fraud Alert or just click on the MP3 button on the radio page. It'll take you there. Click on, click on the episode you want and then click on the MP3 and your device will automatically play it. It'll work on every single device. There's also a built-in player on Poker Fraud Alert, but to be honest, uh, that's not very good. So I really recommend just clicking on the MP3 and then just use your own internal player on whatever device you're using. A computer, a smartphone, doesn't matter. It will play. A lot of different ways to listen. You can also listen on Amazon Alexa. You just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast. Make sure to say podcast at the end. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio Podcast, and it will play. To listen live, aside from just going to the radio tab and listening as we do the live show, you can also use the TuneIn app. We, you'll see we have two entries there. One of them is for the live shows. One of them is for the archives. So you can use that. You can also use the call to listen line. The call to listen line is a phone number you can use to listen to the show either live or when we're not live, it streams reruns 24 hours a day, seven days a week until we come back live on the air. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. It is the call to listen line. Then there's the alternate call to listen line. Works the exact same way. 641-741-1095. 
It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require even a good signal on your phone. It does not require a computer or the internet. All it does is it plays, it works. It's just like a regular phone call where you just call up and listen to the show that is playing live on the Poker Fraud Alert server, either the live one or the streaming reruns, depending upon whether we are live. So check that out. Over a million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line. Beware, though, if you have T-Mobile, it will cost you one penny a minute, which I have no control over. But T-Mobile decided to charge for it, and there's nothing I can do to stop them. Okay, we will go to our agenda now, and then we will get going. See, I've sped this up. I've sped up the intro. People say, it takes half an hour to get through the intro. And we want to get to the good stuff. So I said, okay, I'll speed up the intro. Mike Possel, we have two pieces of news about him. One of them has to do with his attorney, and one of them has to do with something Veronica Brill has done. So we will do both those Possel topics at the beginning of the show. By the way, these were stories that were broken by none other than me. I broke them to Twitter a few days ago. And I will discuss them in more detail in the segments we do on this show. To be honest, if you want the most current and the most accurate Mike Possel news, you should come to Poker Fraud Alert because we've always covered it the best here. Two plus two is way behind. And when they do have posts, they're, they're garbage. I mean, go, go take a look. Go take a look at the discussion on two plus two. It's mostly crap, especially at this point. You get, you have like a lot of really stupid legal opinions from non-attorneys who are like way, way off. So the good discussion of the Mike Possel story comes from here. It comes from me. It comes from Eric Benzamokin when we have him on. That's where you will get the truth. Everywhere else, it's either just copying what we're putting out or is wrong. That's the general rule these days with the Mike Possel situation. Though Poker News put out a good article about it, which, yeah, they got a lot of the information from us, but they did a very good article that summarizes the situation and the updates very well. So they've done a good job covering it. I'm not going to take that away from them. I was very pleased with the article, and the people I sent it to were pleased with it as well. I even sent it to my parents. I sent it to a number of people. And they go, oh, wow, that's a good article. So... Thumbs up to Poker News for that one. Anyway, after that, we will cover the death of Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson will no longer be an opponent of online poker because he will not be alive to do it. Sheldon Adelson is gone, but I'm not going to dance on his grave. Believe it or not, there were plenty of positives that Sheldon Adelson brought to the table, and I can admit this even as someone who is still banned from his properties. So I will tell you the positive, I will tell you the negative, I will tell you everything that I believe about Sheldon Adelson. Don't just believe the easy narrative, oh, he's an enemy of online poker, he's a greedy asshole, fuck him. Like that's, I know that's how some people feel about him, and it's easy to cast someone in the villain role, but it's not actually that easy when you look into someone's life and see that there are positives as well. So we'll discuss all that. A Netherlands woman has released a new type of playing card deck that she hopes catches on. This is a deck of playing cards with no jacks, queens, or kings because it's a gender-neutral playing card deck. (laughs) I'll tell you about that. Speaking of things that are cringy, Annie Duke 
has reared her ugly head once again. And this time she's in a cringy Forbes article. Basically, the way Annie Duke supports herself these days is by going around and posturing as an expert on a bunch of things that she's really not an expert in. I mean, I guess she's good at it because she's getting work, but that's what she does. And a lot of uh, stupid publications hire her and even stupid corporations hire her to speak. So most of the stuff she puts out is crap, to be honest. It's, it's not even like I don't like her, but she's putting out good stuff and I'm just being critical. No, it's, it's actual crap. So we'll go over her Forbes article and I will tell you what's wrong with it, aside from the fact that they're consulting her in the first place. Daniel Negreanu went on a winning streak against Doug Polk, and it was starting to look better for him. He was nowhere near even, but he was starting to get within striking distance, only to give some back. So I'll give you the latest update with Daniel Negreanu versus Doug Polk. Colorado has finally officially killed their $100 max bet limit. It's not going to take effect for a while, but there's going to be major changes to the gambling scene and the poker scene in the state of uh, of Colorado starting on May 1st. I will tell you about these changes. It's more than just the max bet. There's a number of different changes that are coming to the state. All positives for gamblers. So I will give you that news. A degenerate NHL hockey player, that is uh, Evander Kane, has filed for bankruptcy despite signing for $49 million of, of a contract in 2018. Now, he doesn't have all $49 million yet because it's a seven-year contract, but it's pretty unbelievable. He also made plenty of money before that. So this is a guy who should have a ton of money and has just filed for bankruptcy, and a little of it has to do with gambling. So I will go over what was happening with Evander Kane and what we can expect out of him in the future. $13 million was stolen from a South Korean casino by an employee. So I'll tell you that story. A popular old school player, poker player, has passed away. Howard Tahoe Andrew has passed at the age of 86. He was well-liked. Of course, uh, 86 is a pretty good age to live to. He didn't die early for sure. But still, a lot of people liked him and were saddened to hear of his passing. I didn't know him, so I can't give you any personal stories about him. But we'll go over a bit about uh, Howard Tahoe Andrew and his time in poker. He goes way back, of course. We'll, We'll have some coronavirus news, and then that will be the end of the show. So I guess we're ready to start. I don't even have to call Trederuski because he's not around. Trederuski's going to sleep. It's just going to be me for right now. So let's just start out right here with the... Mike Postle stuff. As you guys know, I am someone who is being sued by Mike Postle. Mike Postle sued me and like I think like 11 other defendants for defamation. This suit was filed on October 1st, 2020. It is a very frivolous lawsuit, and I was very angry to be part of this, but I am, and I'm fighting it, and my attorney is Eric Benzamokin. You probably know all this by now. Eric did a great job putting an anti-slap motion together to uh, try to put an end to my involvement in the suit and also force Mike to be responsible for my attorney's fees, and I think that has a good chance of succeeding. We mentioned on a previous show that Mike Postle is starting to have some trouble. One of the issues he is having is that his attorneys 
were trying to get dismissed as his counsel. And they said that they have not communicated with him since November 3rd. Now, this comes directly from court filings. This is not rumor or innuendo. This is uh, facts, at least according to his attorneys, that uh, they could not reach him since November 3rd. When we had Eric Bensamokin on the show to talk about that, he said usually when attorneys file to be dismissed as counsel, it's because they're not getting paid. So it looks like he probably wasn't paying them and he wasn't communicating with them. That's what it appears. For sure, they're claiming he wasn't communicating with them since November 3rd. And when they filed that, it was already into December. So more than a month had gone by where he just wasn't responding to them, according to his attorney, Stephen Lowe. So, as we mentioned before, it's not so simple in this type of case for an attorney to just leave. He can't just quit. He has to get permission from the court to no longer be the counsel of uh, the client. So, he had to file a motion. When I say he, I mean Mike Postle's attorney, Stephen Lowe. And that motion had to be heard in front of a judge. And the judge would decide whether or not to release Stephen Lowe as Mike Postle's attorney. So that hearing took place on January 14th as scheduled, and the result of the hearing was that Stephen Lowe is no longer Mike Postle's attorney. Yep, that's it. He's out. Mike Postle presently has no attorney, unless he has signed on with another one, and we don't know yet, but in all likelihood, he has no attorney at the moment, but he is going to be facing two anti-slap motions fairly soon. Scheduled originally for February 10th was our motion. So my motion where I'm attempting to get the lawsuit against me dismissed, so the entire lawsuit wouldn't be dismissed, but I would be dismissed out of it if I were to win the anti-slap motion, and then Postle would owe me my attorney's fees for everything to get it dismissed. So I had that already filed, and now another one has been filed. A second anti-slap motion has been filed. This one has been filed by Veronica Brill, the original whistleblower in that entire situation. We've had her on the show a number of times, and she has uh, filed an anti-slap of her own. Now, I mentioned on the last episode that she hired uh, First Amendment attorney Mark Randazza, who is based out of Las Vegas. And Mark Randaz is pretty well known. He's kind of like a celebrity First Amendment attorney. And as I also mentioned on the last show, there was another attorney, who I won't name, but another attorney who was recommending Mark Randaz and and contacted several poker players who were involved in this suit, myself included, and said, hey, I just, just want to give you a recommendation. And that person recommended that a bunch of us get together and have Mark Randaz do it. And we could save some money because uh, a lot of the work would have been duplicated otherwise. I decided not to go that route. I decided to go with Eric Benzamokin. And uh, apparently Veronica did hire Mark Randazza. I don't know if she was also recommended by this attorney or if she just found him herself. I don't know if anyone else hired Randazza. I'm not even sure what anyone else is doing regarding legal counsel because nobody's been served. The only two people who have been served in this case are ones who kind of got served by default 
because before even getting served, we hired attorneys who then went ahead and filed these anti-slap motions after getting in contact with Postle's attorneys. So at that point, it's like an implied service. They don't have to officially serve at that point once you've hired an attorney and have acknowledged the lawsuit. So that's the only reason that the two of us have been served. We were never actually served with papers directly. Uh, basically, we got attorneys who just said, okay, uh, we're accepting service. Let's get going with this. So I have done this. Veronica has done this. Veronica has filed an anti-slap motion. Interestingly enough, when it was first filed, it actually got rejected by the court. And it was rejected because the fees involved with filing the anti-slap motion were apparently not paid correctly. (laughs) A little bit embarrassing for uh, Mark Randazza, though I heard that the Sacramento court system has kind of a confusing fee structure, and also often a third-party company is hired to actually do this from you know by other attorneys out of the area so it's very possible this wasn't randaz's fault it's very possible that the company he hired to do this messed something up and didn't submit the right fees of course this wasn't a huge deal they just had to correct it and file again which they did within a day or two so now it has been filed and accepted and it is on the court calendar to be heard as well so originally my anti-slap case was to be heard on february 10th And Veronica's anti-slap case was to be heard on February 11th, the very next day. Well, before Stephen Lowe was dismissed as Mike Postle's attorney, he did put in a motion to delay the anti-slap hearing. And we decided not to challenge it. We had the right to challenge it and demand that it gets heard on February 10th as first scheduled, but it's up to the judge whether it gets delayed or not. However, for reasons I won't get into now, I, I maybe we'll discuss these after the whole thing's over, but for reasons we won't get into now, we decided not to challenge it. We decided that uh, we're okay with that. If they, if they want extra time, they'll get extra time. So his attorney filed that motion. We did not oppose it. And given that we did not oppose it, it was granted. So it is no longer going to be on February 10th. Now my anti-slap hearing is going to be on March 18th, a little bit more than a month later. So no big deal. It's a short delay, but we expected it and, in fact, decided not to challenge it. Veronica's anti-slap hearing has not been delayed yet officially, but uh, there is the same motion to delay it. So, And I believe they're also not challenging it. So I believe it will be also delayed. And Eric told me there's a good chance it'll be on the exact same day that they may assign them both to March 18th. If not, it's going to be very close to March 18th. So keep that date in mind, though I will remind you as it gets closer, because you will see then the first decision regarding this case, aside from Mike Postle's attorneys jumping ship, which has happened. They filed the motion to do it, and it was approved on January 14th, three days ago. So that's it. Mike Postle has no attorneys, and he is still going to have to face these anti-slap motions, even if he drops the suit at this point. There is no getting out of these anti-slap motions. And if Mike were to come to me, and say, you know what, Todd, how about I drop the suit and you drop the anti-slap, my response would be... (laughs) 
And that's because it costs real money to defend this crap. So he filed a frivolous lawsuit against me, which costs money, and he's going to pay. He didn't have to do this. He voluntarily filed a frivolous lawsuit to punish me for speaking my opinion about that entire situation. I wasn't even a main player in the situation. I was just a guy on the side commenting. And I have been dragged into this. So I do believe I will prevail in this anti-slap motion. It's possible I won't. You never know. You never know until you go to the judge and the judge uh, gives his ruling. But I definitely think I'm a, a pretty good favorite to win this. So no, there's nothing that can be done to make me drop this at this point. Now, to be clear, Mike Postle has not contacted me in any way, shape, or form. In fact, to this day, I have never had any communication with Mike Postle. To my knowledge, I've never been in the same room as him. I definitely have never talked to him in any way, even online. And that's why it's crazy that I'm being sued here. Like, I've really had no interaction with the guy. So he has not asked me for this kind of deal. I'm just saying if he did, the answer would be no. This is going forward. And I have to imagine Veronica thinks the same way. She didn't tell me that, but I have to imagine that she would not drop this either. And that since she also is put through this whole thing, that she's going to want to see this play out in court. And Mike will have to pay, or at least he'll be on the hook to pay, if uh, he loses this anti-slap motion. And, of course, we will be out of the lawsuit. So that is where that stands. There probably won't be much more action for the next few months. Because unless he hires an attorney. Now, if he doesn't hire an attorney, he's really in trouble because then he will have to go to court and defend this frivolous lawsuit against experienced attorneys. So he's going to have to go against Eric Benzamokin. He's going to have to go against Mark Randazza in the separate anti-slap for Veronica Brill. And that's going to be very difficult to beat these experienced attorneys who uh, know what they're talking about and are in the right. It's not even like these experienced attorneys are taking a, a, a crap position and are trying to win with it in court. The, you know, it's, it's very obvious to me, at least. I know I'm biased here because I'm part of it. But it's very obvious to me, at least, that this is really perfect for the anti-slap law. This is exactly what it is written for. So... Mike Postle, I think, is going to have a difficult time. It would be hard enough to beat this with an attorney. But if he shows up with no attorney, boy, I mean, his chances are going to be very low. But that may be the case. In fact, it's even possible he won't show up. It's possible he just realizes he's going to lose and just won't even appear. I don't know what's going to happen. I guess we'll have to see on March 18th. And maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe I will lose. And it'll be pretty shocking and very disappointing. But I don't think so. But... You never can know for sure in court until it's over. But that's where it stands. He will owe separate attorney's fees for me and for Veronica if he loses them both. And if other defendants go ahead and do the same thing, then the same thing will happen as well. So he could be on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars of attorney's fees here. And some people are scratching their heads. They're saying, why did he do this? Of all places to file such a lawsuit, California? To file a lawsuit that could easily be dismissed by anti-slap? And having all these defendants 
who can each hit you for their own attorney's fees? I mean, that, that's that'll be a tremendous loss. Now, I doubt he has the money to pay it. He may not be very collectible, but he's going to have this hanging over him. And whoever is going to aggressively try to collect over the years, which we will be among them. I don't. I can't speak for Veronica or anybody else who filed an anti-slap, but uh, definitely if we win a judgment against him, we will aggressively collect from him, even if it takes years. I'm, I'm not going to forget. Eric's not going to forget. So we're going to press very hard on this one and just we're going to be relentless about getting this money. So that's that's why you don't do this. That's why you don't hit people with frivolous lawsuits in order to shut them up. You can't do that. Now, if you have a good case, if you really have been defamed, if you really have been slandered or libeled, yeah, go ahead and file a lawsuit. Be, be aware, especially in California or Nevada, that this anti-slap motion can be filed and you can lose it very easily if your case is not strong. If it looks like the whole thing is about shutting someone up, if it looks like the whole thing is using the legal system to intimidate someone because you don't like what they had to say about you, then you're going to be out a lot of money, especially if you hit multiple defendants. So this this could really blow up pretty badly. I have no idea what he's trying to do here. I really, I've thought about it. I, I still have not exactly put together what the plan was here. But whatever it was, that's where we stand. So I'll give you more news as it comes. I think this is going to be the end of the Apostle News until we get closer to that March 18th date, unless he does hire new counsel, which we will be made aware of soon enough, because they will contact my counsel, they will contact Veronica Brill's counsel, and we will know. You may wonder, why am I putting this information out? Like I, I put this information out on Twitter as soon as I heard that his attorneys were off the case on January 14th. I was the one who broke that news. And I also put out the anti-slap that Veronica filed. She she didn't put it out. I put it out. I got a copy of it, not from her, and I put it out. Now, she's not mad at me for putting it out. She's perfectly fine with that because it's a court document that's in the public record. It's not a secret. But I am the one who distributed it. And I, in fact, I redistributed my own in that same tweet. You can find on my Twitter... Uh, Todd Wittellis, W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S, you can find that tweet. But I'm putting out this news because I can. Because I can put out any news that is in the public record without jeopardizing my case whatsoever. So any document that is filed with the court and accepted by the court becomes part of the public record. And if I want to report it and I want to distribute that information, that is my right to do so. And it could never be used against me in court. So, you know, there's no gag order where I can't speak about Possel. Now, I there are a number of things I won't say at this time about Mike Possel. And that is the wise thing to do when there's uh, pending litigation. So there's certain things I can say. There's certain things I can't say. But any developments that have to do with the legal case here, I will let you know. It's not a secret. These are all things in the public record. And if you come upon any information that I have not reported yet, definitely send it to me. And in fact, I will keep you anonymous if you want. You can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. That's dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Or you can DM me on Twitter 
or if you can't DM me, you can ask me to follow you so you can DM me. That's uh, Todd Wittelis, W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S. And you can text me, 775-372-8355. And as I said, I will keep your confidentiality if you want me to. And also, if you have any information about assets he might have or anything along those lines, you can let me know because I have nothing to collect right now. I haven't won anything from him yet, but if I do, it would be helpful to know these things. So if you have that information, again, your anonymity is guaranteed. That's all I can tell you about that. By the way, speaking of Mark Randazza, first, before I I tell you about this, I do want to say that he did a very good job with the Vital Vegas lawsuit, which was also an anti-slap matter. Now, I don't like Vital Vegas, but Randazza did a good job. I mentioned it on the last show. And the Sahara was suing Vital Vegas for saying that they were going to be closing when it turned out they really weren't. But uh, Vital Vegas was right there. He had enough reason to believe that they were closing. He did have some evidence that it seemed to be on the way, even though ultimately it didn't happen. And he should not have been sued for this. And he won. So Randazza put forth an anti-slap motion in Nevada. And Vital Vegas won. So I And I read the anti-slap motion. I, I thought it was well done. I'm not an attorney to where I can't judge it through the same lens that a professional could. But as someone who knows a lot about the law and legal processes and stuff like that, it, it looked good to me. So as far as that's concerned, I, I think that Veronica has a competent attorney. And if, if you go take a look at the anti-slap that was submitted, that looks good to me, too the one that was just submitted about the Apostle case. But Mark Randazza does not have a blemish-free record. And if you want to read a pretty sordid story about him that appeared in the Huffington Post that involved the suspension of his license in Nevada and uh, same with Florida and also discipline that he got in California over the same matter. This was a matter from back in 2010, but the whole thing dragged for many years, but it's a very interesting story. It's actually, it actually has a connection to the gay porn industry of all things. In fact, I, I wonder if he encountered Christopher Mitchell. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Mark Randazza got himself into some hot water there, and that article is not a very flattering article about him, but it's very interesting. So go take a look at the Huffington Post. Uh, you'll see in the thread on Poker Fraud Alert about the Apostle case in the Flying Stupidity Forum you will see a link to that HuffPost article. You may say, oh, the HuffPost, I don't know if I like that. You know, if, like, if you're a conservative, you probably hate the HuffPost because it's a very left-wing site. Well, unfortunately, the one flaw with this article is that the author, who's very, very much on the left and hates Trump with a passion, couldn't help but insert politics into the story where it didn't belong. Because... When you read the story, it really has nothing to do with politics. And, and the guy just kept with the political soapboxing and, and was bringing Trump into it. And Trump had nothing to do with this whole thing. So I will tell you when I read a story like this, I don't want to read about politics. If politics is not part of the story, I don't want to read politics. I don't want to read politics from the right. I don't want to read politics from the left. I just don't want to read about politics if it is not an aspect of the story, which here it was not. So – the author did have the annoying habit of veering into political soapboxing, 
But if you can ignore that, I will admit that the article was very well detailed, and you'll get uh, a very good picture of what appeared to have gone on with Mark Randazza in uh, 2010. So he definitely doesn't have a blemish-free record, but nonetheless, he did handle the vital Vegas thing well, and the anti-slap motion that he filed looked good. So I'm not saying that Veronica hired an attorney who's not competent. I mean, he's definitely competent, there's no question, but he did get himself into a bit of a mess about 10 years ago. It's interesting, though. I think you want to read it. That's just a little side story. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson passed away at the age of 87. And a lot of people celebrated in poker. A lot of people were very happy to see that Sheldon Adelson died because he was a longtime opponent of online gambling. Not just online poker, but all online gambling Sheldon Adelson was very against. And what a lot of people believed about him was that he was a cold, greedy businessman who believed that online casinos were going to hurt his business. So even though online casinos and online poker and online sports betting, even though these were things that the Americans wanted, that uh, it was something that most people supported, it was something that basically every single poker player supported, that Sheldon Adelson simply didn't want it because he felt it would hurt his business. And a lot of people thought this was incredibly hypocritical, that how could a man who owns multiple large casinos in different markets, how can he have the nerve to say that online gambling is dangerous, that online gambling is bad for society? So basically he's saying brick-and-mortar gambling is totally fine, but online gambling is terrible. Now, obviously that's an absurd position, so people chalked it up to, okay, it's got to be about money. Well, I can't tell you what's, what was inside Sheldon Adelson's head, but what I can tell you is that my best guess from observing the situation was that this was not the case. You have to understand Sheldon Adelson to understand his motivation here. And I don't fully understand his motivation here, but I partially understand it. Sheldon Adelson is, or shall I say was, a guy who put his money where his mouth was. There are many people out there who like to come out and speak about things that they believe in, or things they don't like, or things they do like, but then when it comes to actually supporting the cause, they don't want to do anything. They don't want to volunteer. They don't want to donate. They don't want to do anything. They just want to talk. And that's fine. You're not required to put your time into something or donate money to something when you have an opinion on it. But when someone actually does put time, effort, and or money behind something they believe in, you have to give them a little respect that they are not just shooting their mouth off, that they're actually trying to take action for what they believe is right. So Sheldon Adelson had a few obsessions of things that were very important to him. And he would back those things with the vast fortune that he had amassed. Of course, he was a billionaire and he had a lot of money to throw around. And he figured, okay, I'm so rich, I can afford to do this. So why don't I actually back causes I care about? So one of the things he really cared about, which has nothing to do with online poker or any gambling, but one of the things he really cared about was Israel. Sheldon Adelson was not Israeli, but he was a Jew. 
and he really was pro-Israel. And that was a very, very important issue to him. In fact, even though he was a political conservative, he was so pro-Israel that he sometimes donated to Democrats to beat the Republican if he felt that the Democrat was more likely to uh, be pro-Israel. So that was the first and foremost topic that he cared about. And that would really dictate who he would donate his money to. Now, you may say, hey, I heard he donated a lot of money to Trump. He's one of these jerks who was a big-time Trump supporter. Well, he was a big-time Trump supporter, but not the way you think. He was a big-time Trump supporter because Trump was pro-Israel. And if you saw from the way Trump governed during his four years in office, you will notice he was indeed very pro-Israel and that he moved the embassy to Jerusalem when several presidents in a row, Republican and Democrat, had promised to do it and never did. But he did that, and he was uh, all of his policy in general was very pro-Israel. I'm talking about foreign policy where Israel could be involved. Not only did Trump say he was pro-Israel, he actually governed in a pro-Israeli fashion. And that is why Adelson backed him. It was not about the border wall. It was not about draining the swamp. It, It wasn't about all that stuff. It was really about Israel. That's why he put so much money into backing Trump. But he has backed a number of politicians over time, as I said, of both parties. And the one factor you can see that is common for all of them was the support of Israel. Now, maybe you're not pro-Israel. Maybe you don't like Israel. Maybe you think that uh, the U.S. should not be backing Israel in any way. And I'm not going to get into that here. I'm pro-Israel, though I'm also a Jew. So yeah, I'm biased. But what I'm trying to tell you here, regardless of how you feel about Israel and the U.S.'s relations with Israel, is that... This was a very, very important cause to him, and it was not done out of selfishness. Sheldon Adelson wasn't getting anything out of backing Israel. He was, it's not like he had some secret deal with Israel where he'd get uh, some kind of uh, allowance for casinos or something if he backs them. Like this, this was a personal passion of his that he was pro-Israel, and he spent a lot of money backing candidates who were pro-Israel. So he was a principled guy. You may not have agreed with him, but he's a principled guy who put his money out there to back what he believed. Now, speaking of Israel, something else that Sheldon Adelson did was he paid for trips for American Jews, young American Jews, to visit Israel. And uh, I know One Step actually did it. One Step actually took these trips, or one of these trips. And, and again, this was... a uh, an effort by Sheldon Adelson to uh, help American Jews feel more of a connection to Israel. He got nothing out of this personally. This was not for any kind of business interest. This was really because, again, he was pro-Israel, and he felt it was important for young American Jews to visit Israel. And he knew that since the U.S. and Israel are so far apart, that it's not cheap to go there. So, and he knew most young people cannot afford to go there, so he actually uh, paid for trips for young American Jews who wanted to go to Israel. So that's that's another thing he did that really is unusual for uh, a rich businessman. When you look at his life, you have to look at things like this. You have to say, this guy believed in Israel so much, he was actually paying 
Not not for Jews he knew. Like he was he was paying for it was a program he had for young American Jews to sign up to go to Israel on his dime. So this was uh, a passion of his, and I would say that's a positive passion for sure. Unfortunately, he also had a negative passion that affected us, and that was his hatred of online gambling. Now, this is where I only partially understand. I only partially understand because he hated online gambling, and I believe this really was the same type of passion he had for Israel. Not quite as strong. Israel is more important to him than fighting online gambling. But again, it was something that he felt strongly about from a moral level. I don't know how he rectified it in his head that online gambling was bad and live gambling was good. You would think that someone would either be pro-gambling or anti-gambling and not really delineate whether it's online or live. It's either gambling's okay or gambling's not okay. And I, I can understand both positions. You know which side I'm on, but I can understand both positions. I cannot understand a position where... The live version is good. The online version is bad. I've seen people develop gambling problems both live and online. I've seen lives ruined both live and online. But I also feel that people should have the right to spend their money whichever way they like. And if they want to gamble, then they should be allowed to gamble. So I believe that's true of live. I believe that's true of online. Sheldon Adelson did not believe that. Sheldon Adelson, who owned casinos, believed that very much... Live casinos should be allowed, but not online casinos. Not sure why. Not sure how that came to be. I know when he was uh, putting his money into fighting it, that his underlings were claiming that it was a danger to the children and trotted out a lot of BS like that. But it wasn't. I mean, the, the truth is, online gambling is a very, very, very minimal danger to the children because it's just too hard for children to get money on there. And if they do, they'll do it once, their parents will catch them, and that'll be that. And it's pretty hard for them to do it because they have to pass a lot of uh, know-your-customer examinations when they set up an account, and most kids are not going to be able to do that on their parents' behalf. But if they do, and they get away with it once, then that's it. Then their parents will get the credit card bill, and that will be that. So really, children are not going to develop gambling addictions because of legalized online gambling. It just isn't realistic. It, we haven't even heard of any stories of this happening. And if there is one or two stories out there, it doesn't really matter. Like that's a, it, it would be tiny percentage outliers. So gam- online gambling is not a danger to the children. They also claimed that there were money laundering concerns, which I will agree that's, that is a concern using online gambling to launder money. But guess what? Live gambling is also used to launder money, as we've discussed on the show. In fact, uh, we've discussed various casinos that have been busted involving uh, money laundering accusations that they looked the other way as it happened. Not that they were laundering money, but that uh, patrons were laundering money and the employees uh, either knew it and went along with it, probably for tips, or they just looked the other way because they didn't want to put a stop to it. So that's a danger In all casinos, online and live, there really is no good reason not to have legalized online gambling if you're going to have legalized live gambling. So I totally disagree with Edelson's position on it. He did put a lot of money in to fighting it, and that was frustrating to see, and I can see why poker players got angry about this and came to dislike him. 
because he was basically trying to attack their livelihood and that didn't sit well with them. I didn't like that either. I did not appreciate that either. But I will acknowledge that it was something he felt passionate about and it was not something he was doing because he felt threatened that his online, that his live casinos were going to lose money. In fact, he knew that when the licenses were to be handed out for these online casinos, that he would be in line to get such licenses. Because remember, those licenses typically go to existing live casinos. So he would be in line to make a lot of that money. And he chose not to. Not only did he oppose it, but there was no online casino that he was setting up. Yeah, he kept consistent with that. Now, in, in his final days, I was hearing that they were looking into possibly getting into the online sports betting market, which that is a bit hypocritical, but I don't know if it was him making that decision. You know, he was really on his last legs there. He died of cancer, so his death wasn't a surprise. He's been sick for a long time. This wasn't a healthy guy who just dropped dead of a heart attack or stroke. This was someone who had cancer that actually stepped away from his company in his final days to try to devote full-time to fighting the cancer, which I think more means that he just wasn't healthy enough to continue working. When when someone steps away full-time to fight the cancer, usually that means that they, they can't do anything else. They're physically incapable of continuing normal life. And usually, especially at that age, once you're uh, stopping everything else in your life to fight cancer, uh, usually it's a bad situation and you're going to die pretty soon. And indeed, that's what happened. But he lived to 87. He has a complicated legacy. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel said he was a huge Jewish patriot. Now, Sheldon Adelson had an interesting history. You may wonder how he made his money because it didn't just come from the Venetian and uh, and Palazzo and, and his Macau properties or his uh, Pennsylvania property. Uh, how did he make his money before that? How did he make his money to buy those properties in the first place? Well, he actually made his money originally in the 1970s. He and some business partners developed Comdex, which you might recognize as a trade show in the computer industry. And uh, Comdex became huge. I remember uh, I remember Comdex back in the uh, 80s and 90s. And uh, he sold Comdex in 1995 to a company called SoftBank for $862 million. He got $500 million of it. Remember, he had some partners, but he got half a billion dollars in 1995 from selling Comdex. So uh, he, he bought the Sands, which is no longer in Vegas. That's now the Venetian. That's why there is a Sands Avenue in Las Vegas, and that runs along the outside of the Venetian. So he bought the Sands in uh, 1988 for $110 million, and then he formed the Las Vegas Sands Corporation. Then uh, he built the Sands Expo and Convention Center in 1989, You may have recognized that when you've driven around Vegas in recent times. And you may say, wait a minute, how is it that the Sands doesn't exist anymore? But I remember seeing the Sands Expo and Convention Center. What gives with that? Well, the Sands Expo and Convention Center is all that remains of the Sands because uh, 
1990, he demolished the Sands Hotel. And then uh, after that, he spent $1.5 billion to build the Venetian, where the Sands once stood. And uh, the Palazzo came a little bit later. That came in uh, 2007. And that's like a sister property of the Venetian. Yeah, you know, they call it a different hotel, but it's really this, it's kind of more like a second tower for the Venetian, but it's kind of like the Wynn and Encore. After that, he expanded into Pennsylvania, and then he did something very smart, something Caesars wished they did, but they did not do. He bought into Macau and Singapore. And the Macau property has made a fortune. Sands Macau has made a lot of money. So the casino corporations that did not get into Macau when they had the chance really, really regret it. And Caesars is one of them. Caesars kicks themselves that they did not expand into Macau. But Adelson did, and I I believe that's where he made most of his money at that point, was uh, the Macau property was just very, very profitable. Macau is so profitable because it is a popular destination for the super-rich Chinese who like to gamble. So they have some very high-stakes games, and that includes poker, by the way. He doesn't make much from the poker, but they have very high-stakes games in Macau, not just at his casino. So a lot of whales come there. A lot of very high-stakes players who come in are not positive expectation players, are pretty much destined to lose, and you can clean up. You don't have to nickel and dime the, the... tourists who come there with a few hundred dollar gambling budget. I mean, the, the the whales that come into Macau, that generates a lot of revenue very easily. So Macau is a great place to open a casino. And he got involved with that and that made him even more money. He actually had plans to uh, build a place in Japan, but then decided against it for whatever reason last year. I'm not sure why, Maybe maybe because of COVID. But in May of last year, he decided not to expand it to Japan. He did pay his employees for the for two months during COVID when they had the shutdown. Some people gave him credit for that. Others said, well, other casinos did that too, so he wasn't unique. Well, I agree he wasn't unique, but he's, he still paid. He didn't have to. If he was this cold businessman, he could have paid them one month or two weeks or nothing. He paid them two months when COVID shut down the business for that time. Also, remember Texas? We've talked about the Texas gambling scene. We had Amanda Stinchcomb, who de- who deals there in those kind of quasi-legal rooms, uh, talking about the scene there. But they still don't have any kind of real casinos in Texas. They have those weird card rooms where you're renting a seat, but they don't just have regular brick-and-mortar casinos in the state of Texas, despite the fact that it is the uh, either the second or third largest state in the union population-wise. Them and New York are pretty close in population. Uh, California is the biggest, but it's, it's a very large state population-wise and geographically as well. But they don't have any gambling there that's fully legal. Sheldon Allison apparently was one of the forces they're pushing for them to just outright legalize casinos in Texas. But it, it didn't really go anywhere, and now he's not going to be alive to do it anymore. He did say at one point that he was willing to spend whatever it takes to keep online poker out of the U.S. And 
that applied to all online gambling. It wasn't just poker. But uh, he wasn't even okay with poker only. He said, I want no online gambling in the U.S., and I'm going to spend, quote, whatever it takes to stop it. So that pissed off a lot of people, and understandably so. What's the chance of online poker now becoming legalized federally because its main opponent, its its main well-funded opponent, is gone? The chance is very low. Really not much is going to change, because I'll tell you one thing that Sheldon Adelson was not successful at. He was successful at a lot of things, but I'll tell you where he failed. And that was stopping online poker, because there is online poker that's legalized in the U.S. It is legalized in Nevada. It is legalized in Delaware. It is legalized in New Jersey. It is legalized in Pennsylvania. It's even legalized in D.C., just nothing's been done with it, because D.C. is small. But... It is legalized in these places, and it'll probably be legalized in several others as time passes. So he didn't get what he wanted. In fact, there was a reinterpretation of the Wire Act from 1961, which uh, basically said that it was only applying to sports betting, and online poker and online casinos were not covered by that, which is what allowed these online poker sites to spring up, these legal online poker sites. Now, it looked like they may be in peril when, in 2019, the Department of Justice reconsidered that opinion from 2011 and actually went back and sided with Adelson. But uh, it wasn't a complete reversal, and there's a a lawsuit from uh, the New Hampshire Lottery about the whole thing. So, at the moment... It, uh, it it isn't really having an effect, and it may never have an effect, especially without Adelson there to continue funding that fight. But don't expect much to change, because Adelson didn't get much change negatively in the first place. The, the, the biggest victory he had was the thing in 2019, but that still has not yet had a, a real-world impact. So don't think that, okay, now that he's gone, the, the floodgates will open up. Because everything he did wasn't working. So basically, it's as a failed opponent to online poker has died. Which means, yeah, he's not going to cause any new trouble, but the barriers to full legalization are still all present and nothing has changed with that. Uh, federal legalization is probably just not going to happen. Basically, the federal government sees this as a state's issue. The federal government at the moment is just, you know what? If you states all want to have it, great. If all 50 states want to have it, great. We don't care. If you don't want to have it, we also don't care. But it actually is legal at the moment for money to transfer over state lines. So you, that's why you have rooms like WSOP.com, which encompass Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. And people in those states are all betting against each other with the money crossing state lines. So theoretically, all 50 states could legalize online poker and could have card rooms that span all 50 states, just like in the old days. But I don't see that happening. There are certain states that are likely never going to get on board. Utah is one of them that immediately comes to mind, but there's many others that probably won't get on with it. And uh, then there's places like California, which want to add it, but there's too much legal wrangling about... uh, who will get the license, about which software is allowed to be used, is PokerStars allowed in the market or not. So this has been dragging forever in California, which is not only the most populous state, 
but uh, it's it's so populous that it actually has about 12% of the entire U.S. population. And also it's uh, always been kind of a very poker-centric place where I think per capita there's more poker play in California than most ever other states anyway. So it's not just a big population, it's a big poker-interested population. Because some areas of the country are more interested in poker than others. I remember when I was on uh, Poker Stars, you saw everyone's city, most of the U.S. players tended to be from California, New York, New Jersey. There were some from Minnesota. There, there were some from Chicago. But that, that was pretty much it. Like, yeah, they were, they were spread out throughout the country, and you had people like Chris Moneymaker like from Tennessee, but you didn't have that many players from areas that didn't have many live card rooms. If you couldn't easily drive to a live card room, then you just weren't getting many players from there because they were not... You didn't have people who were already poker players that saw it and wanted to play. So areas that didn't really have access to poker, they had to start out as beginners, and a lot of them didn't want to do it. My point is that you're not going to see very much movement here. You may not see any movement. You may see really no difference after Adelson has passed regarding online poker's legalization. So don't don't get excited by this. If you want to be excited because you hated him, I, I guess, but... I wasn't happy to hear he died. I wasn't sad. I I saw his positives and negatives. And I'm always someone who wants to judge people for what they really are, not what I'd prefer to think they were. It's easy to cast heroes and villains in your mind because that's human nature. It's, It's much easier to think a simple narrative that doesn't challenge anything that you previously believed. And it's also easier to believe absolutes. It's easy easy to believe uh, this person's a jerk, this person's awful, this person has no redeeming qualities, or uh, this person's great, this person's nice, this person's good, this person's generous. Like you, so you can think good things about someone, and then really force your mind to think everything good about them. And then you can think something bad about someone, and you can force your mind to think everything bad about them. I, I have a feeling if you were to talk to people who don't like me, you'd probably hear them have nothing good to say. And if you were to ask them, what well, can you say anything good about Todd? They'd probably struggle to do it because they've blocked out of their mind anything good they may have noticed. Whereas if you speak to someone who likes me, uh, they will be able to say a lot of good things they believe about me. And if you ask what bad things do you think, even if they're, even if they know it won't get back to me, they may have a hard time telling you because they, they don't really like to think about that. So that, that's the way human nature tends to work. So when there's someone who has been vilified in the community like uh, Sheldon Adelson has, and when he has actually done things to attack online poker, and everyone hated him for that reason, then it's easier to just think of him as a villain. And especially if you're on the left, you can really hate him because he was a Trump supporter. He mostly had conservative political views. And he was against online poker. So if you are a left-wing poker player who hates Trump, then he's like the ultimate villain. He liked Trump. He put a lot of money into supporting Trump. And he was uh, a conservative for the most part. And he was against online poker. I mean, it's 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 ready-made to hate him, but it's not that simple. If he was this awful, terrible guy, why why is he paying for young people to go to Israel, young Jews to go visit Israel? I mean, it's a nice experience. It's a nice experience for for Jews from the U.S. who couldn't afford it to go to Israel. 
and 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 see the uh, the birthplace of the religion. That's where complexity arises. That's why the narrative of people's lives is rarely simple, and that's definitely the case with Sheldon Adelson. Seven seven five fraud fifty five. 775-372-8355 is the number to call me or text me. Okay, well, then I guess uh, we will move on. And let's just get to a, a lighter topic. I think something that most of us can agree upon. A woman in the Netherlands has released a unique deck of cards. This is a deck of cards with no Jack, Queen, or King because it is a gender-neutral deck of cards. <laughs> Yes, a gender-neutral deck of cards. Why? I, I don't know why that's necessary. I don't know what's wrong with three of the cards having genders. Uh, the cards are not sexist in any way. It's not like the, the queens in a bikini. Uh, the, it's just two different genders are depicted. Two of them are men, the jack and the king, and, and the one is a female, the, the queen. And it's even kind of fair. You have one woman and two men, and the woman is a higher rank than one of them and a lower rank than the other. So you can't even say the woman's on the bottom and the men are on the top. Uh, th- this is the one woman out of the three is right in the middle, which is about as fair as it can be. And she's not depicted in any kind of degrading or inferior way. And and this, of course, playing cards were designed a very long time ago when there was not any kind of concept of equality between the sexes. But nonetheless, a deck of cards is not sexist in any way. And I, I think everybody knows that. But despite that, uh, this has been released, and uh, this was actually covered on Card Player Lifestyle, which is uh, we we had the owner of Card Player Lifestyle, Robbie Straczynski, on this show. He covered this story. Now, I, I do want to say that uh, he just covered this as a news story. This was not something that uh, he was saying he supported. I will say, yeah, it's a kind of clickbaity, but it, it was something that got people's attention and got them over to his site. So, okay, good for him. This woman's name is Indy Melink, M-E-L-L-I-N-K, and Indy is spelled I-N-D-Y, and she's from the Netherlands. She thought that it was strange that the queen was inferior to the king, so... She thought that was sexist. She thought that it's not fair that the top rank of those three is a man. (laughs) I I don't know how she feels about the ace. because The ace beats all of them. The ace has no gender. The ace, you can say, maybe is non-binary. Maybe the ace is uh, gender queer. I I don't know. What what do you say about the ace? But uh, the jack, queen, and king, she felt it was strange that the king is higher than the queen. When she wanted to explain a card game to her uh, younger cousins, she's only 23, so she has some cousins who are kids, I guess. She was uh, kind of embarrassed, and she's like, well, how do I explain? How do I explain that the king beats the queen? How do I explain that the king is better than the queen? That's very sexist. Why should the man be better than the woman? Now, if she thought about it for a second, that she said, wait a minute, but this woman's also better than this man here. The jack, the queen's better than the jack. So uh, this is actually a good lesson that, you know, some people are better than others and it's not based on gender. So here you have a, a woman who is, is better than one man, but worse than the other man. Okay. This sounds fair to me. Anyway, uh, she said she got annoyed 
when attempting to explain, quote, the age-old values of a deck of cards, <laughs> and that uh, she didn't quite know how to explain this to her young cousins. She claimed that her father remarked, if it irritated her so much, she should do something about it. I kind of don't believe that. Like, okay, so she, I, I would think her father probably told her she's being ridiculous, but <laughs> you should do something about it. Maybe he's being sarcastic. Like, what can you do about it that you're irritated with a deck of cards? That has been something that's been the same for many, many years. So she decided she is going to create her own new deck of cards with the same ranks, works the same way, except the genders are taken away from the Jack, Queen, and King. Instead of the Queen, she wanted a, a prince and princess. Instead of a jack, she wanted a farmer and farmer's wife together on that card. <laughs> and uh, in, instead of the king, she wanted a royal couple. So that was that was the original idea, to just put couples there. This way, uh, no one person is above the other. This way, it's one couple's above the other, and then uh, the second couple is above the third couple. Now, I, I want to ask here, isn't that still classism? <laughs> In her original plan, which she didn't go with, but uh, uh, in her original plan, the royals were going to be the top. The royal couple of the king and queen were going to be the king. And then a prince and princess were going to be the queen, and the jack would be a farmer and farmer's wife. So basically, you're looking down on the farmer for being poor, which farmers often aren't poor, but let's, let's pretend he is here. I, I guess he is compared to the prince and princess and king and queen. But but the, basically, the, the farmers are below the royalty, is what the message is here, which to me is much worse than just having a, a, a male, a female and a male on those three cards. She said, I found it difficult to represent two people properly on one card. And what would we call that card? How about you just don't change anything? <laughs> how, how about instead of pondering this, you just go, you know what? This actually is not a problem. In fact, like nobody's complained about this. Even Vanessa Selps has not complained about this. If Vanessa Selps has not bitched yet about a gender issue, about a perceived gender issue involving gambling, then it does not exist. Because she she finds everything to complain about. So if Vanessa Selps has never said anything, if Kate Hall has never said anything, you, you can assume it's not a problem. But she decided it is one. So she had to change this. She decided she can't do it. But then there's another problem. There's another problem that she didn't like about the existing playing cards. So let's look at the Jack, Queen, and King again. What do they have in common? I mean, they, they do have two different genders, but what do all three of them have in common? Yes, folks, all three characters depicted on the playing cards are white! Oh, no! 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 How can people of color play cards without feeling that this is a racist jab at them because the three characters depicted are all white people? No! Awful! Bad, bad, bad! We cannot have this. We must have equal racial representation in our playing cards. So she said, I thought about it, and most of the, the picture cards you see are white people. It's always a white king, queen, and jack. Whether that's intended or not, they're certainly not people of color. I don't think that was representative either. That's another form of inequality. Oh, come on. <laughs> so... So then she thought, you know what? There's no way to depict people on these cards without appearing discriminatory in some way. 
So no matter who you make the king, they're going to be above the, the whoever's depicted on the queen, who's going to be above whoever's depicted on the jack. So let's say you start depicting people of color. Let, let's say you even make the white people to the bottom. Let's, let's say you make the white people the jack, okay? Well, let's. who do you make the king then? Like, so you, you, what, maybe the black people are the, are the, the king and the, the, the Hispanic people are the queen? Well, that makes the Hispanic people look bad because they're they're below the black people. So she's like, well, crap, how, what do I do about this? I, I can't put people on these cards at all without being racist, sexist, or classist in any way. These weren't her words, but this is basically what she was thinking. So she decided that uh, the solution to this is not to depict people on playing cards at all and make sure that all 52 cards have no people. (laughs) She said, I was looking for something new, something easy that everyone already knows. Oh, you mean like a deck of playing cards? Finally, I had a eureka moment. My eureka moment was, I'm a moron, I should leave well enough alone, and I should stop this silly exercise in cancel culture. No, no, that, that, that should have been her eureka moment, it was not. She said, I had a eureka moment, here it is, here's the brilliant idea, gold, silver, and bronze. How original. How original. Gold, silver, and bronze for three ranks. That's innovative stuff. Who would have thought where gold could be the top and silver could be the middle and bronze could be the bottom? Where where have we heard of that before? I don't remember. If it's, I've heard of it somewhere. Well, whatever. I, I think it's damn original. So uh, she started up a website in October called gsb-playingcards.com, which, by the way, is a horrible URL, gsb-playingcards.com. I, I assume playing cards was, the playingcards.com was taken, but, you know, either find playingcards.something else, like probably .eu was taken too, but you could probably find something else, uh, some other suffix at the end, or or it could even be uh, uh, genderneutralcards.com. At least that's memorable. I won't forget that. If you say her site is genderneutralcards.com, I'll probably remember that for the rest of the time. But I'm not going to remember gsb-playingcards.com beyond doing this show. In fact, I bet by the end of the show I won't remember the site anymore. Anyway, for uh, about 10 euros, which is worth a little bit more than $10, you can buy a gender-neutral deck of cards with the gold, silver, and bronze instead of the king, queen, and jack. I'm on the site right now, gsb-playingcards.com. And I'm looking at these three cards. So the gold, instead of having a K, where it's uh, like a K with a with the suit, it says G, you know, for gold. S is for silver, for the queen, and B is for bronze. The picture of the gold is kind of some some kind of weird picture. It kind of looks like a a picture of a sun that's golden with flowers around it and gold bars. Silver has like a bunch of silver pieces over some flowers. And bronze has like a bronze shield over some roses. But here's the biggest problem here. It's not like she made gold, silver, and bronze the king, queen, and jack and left the KQJ. Here she actually changed the letters of the cards. So how confusing is this? Like a, you're, you're so used to playing with kings, queens, and jacks. And then you're using her deck and you're like, okay, I, instead of I have KQ, like for king, queen, well, I, I've got, uh, SB. And you're like, well, wait, wait which is better? 
like it, it starts to get really confusing because you got to remember a whole different set of cards. She, she, she's not just changing the picture. What she, if she's going to do the stupidity, what she should do is keep the K, Q, and J and just have them not mean anything anymore. Just have them be letters, and then put a picture of gold, a picture of silver, a picture of bronze. But to have actually GSB, it's very confusing. So, so like uh, pocket G's beats uh, pocket S's, and pocket S's beats uh, pocket B's. Very weird. So uh, th- this is what she writes on her website. GSB signifies gold, silver, bronze. The idea is to remove gender hierarchy and race differences from our card decks. So come on. <laughs> Why should the king have a higher position than the queen? Why should the king, queen, and jack be white? However, rather than complicating the sex and race inequality debate even more, yeah, you've, you've complicated it pretty much right there, uh, we decided to remove the gender and race factor as a whole to introduce a common, universally known ranking system. No, you didn't. You, you introduced a new ranking system. You, you introduced GSB instead of uh, KQJ. That's totally, that's not universally known at all. If you, if you give this deck to someone, they're going to say, what the hell is this? What's a G? What's an S? What's a B? All of the other cards in the deck are the same as usual. The card pack was designed with a passion to fight for equality in gender as well as race. Our goal for everyone is to feel comfortable while playing cards. Yeah. Nothing makes you feel comfortable while playing cards, like having to learn a whole new deck of cards, having to learn three new ranks and not screw up. So, so you think your pocket S's is the second best hand? You go, oh, wait a minute, it's the third best hand. Crap! Oh no, the pocket G's beat me. Oh no, the G on the board, uh, and I had, I have an S, and there's a G on the board. I didn't realize it's an overcard. Shit! Why can't I just go back to regular cards? I, I want to go back to the, the the racist, sexist cards, please. I can't believe this. And then there's a quote. It doesn't say who the quote's from. It's just, quote, These cards make a great gift. I bought a pack for my children and grandchildren as a pr- Christmas present. Well, whose quote is that? I think she just made it up. Like, she doesn't even, like, attribute this to some fake name. Like, why not? This is supposed to be, like, some old person saying this because they have grandchildren. Like, why not say, like, from Gertrude M or something? <laughs> Instead, it's just a quote. Okay, next, the next quote. Quote, Playing with a card in a public place is a great way to start a conversation about gender equality. Uh, no. Playing with these cards in a public place makes you look like a pretentious douche. Okay, next quote. I have never thought about it before, but it just makes sense. I'm bringing these faceless cards with me everywhere now. Yeah, and, and you're going to look like a pretentious douche. Okay, next quote. Oh, no, it's the same one. We're, we're back to the, the grandchildren getting it as a Christmas present. Can you imagine if your grandma gives you this? You're, you're expecting some nice present from grandma, and she brings you playing cards that nobody understands? How are you going to bring this over to anyone's house and say, "Okay, okay, let's let's play some cards"? The kids are going to be like, "What is a G? What's what's an S? What's a B? I, I don't know what these cards are." Oh, that that's because uh, we're playing with with gender neutral, race neutral cards, and and the other cards are, are sexist and racist, and you're sexist and racist for using them. So you better use these cards, unless you want to acknowledge you're sexist and racist. You don't want that, do you? That'll make you really fun at parties. Yeah, go break out one of these at a party and see how people react. Go, go bring this to a home game and see if they like it. There actually was a home game I was going to. I'll, I'll tell you the only reason I would order these cards. There was a home game I was going to that I had to stop going to because of COVID. Well, I didn't have to, but I chose to stop going to. I actually might have ordered these cards for the $10. I, I assume they shipped to the U.S. I might have ordered them just as a gag. 
and and say, "Hey guys, I have my own deck today," and <laughs> deal them out, and then and then everybody get a good laugh. That that might be worth the ten bucks, provided shipping's not too much. But okay, let's let's look at the web shop. I'm going to click on the web shop. Okay, so they're they're nine dollars ninety five. Oh, but wait, 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 wait. You can get a double pack, so you can get nine ninety five euros. That's nine nine euros ninety five. Whatever I don't know if it's cents or whatever they call them there, or you can get a double pack of them for the great price of nineteen ninety. <laughs> well, thank you for the bulk discount. Thank you for cheapening it because I bought two. It's not like you're just doubling the. Pr- oh, no, wait, wait, no, you did double the price. All you did was double the price. Why even sell a double pack if it's going to be double the price of the first pack? Why? Why even do that? Why not just Buy two individual packs. <laughs> At least you didn't charge more for the double pack than two single packs. But like, wh- still, seriously, why why buy a double pack? Okay, I- I'm going to click on. I'm going to buy the double pack. So I'm going to click on it. Add to cart. It's been added. View cart. Shipping is four euro. Though if I spend uh, at least fifty five euro worth of these uh, crappy cards, then I get shipping free. <laughs> Okay, there's a uh, a coupon code which I don't have, which is because you know the Jew in me is is feeling bad about this, even though this isn't a real purchase. I kind of want to find one, but I won't I won't pause the show for that. Let's proceed to checkout, see what happens. Billing details. Now, it doesn't it doesn't mention international shipping. Is it really true I could ship these all the way to the U.S. for four euro? Well, I'm I'm not going to try. I I don't feel like entering all the info. But anyway, these are a real thing. GSB-PlayingCards.com. I, I guess if you're you're very very uh, sensitive, if you're a uh, social justice warrior poker player, and you want to impress other social justice warrior poker players, then I guess you can buy these. I, like if you're going to go play with Scott Seaver or Justin Bonomo, they might be impressed. I'm not going to lie about that. I think that certain individuals in poker might appreciate these and might give you points. I will say that. Uh, Basically, Robbie Straczynski made the rounds in poker groups on Facebook and uh, posted about this, and the reaction was overwhelmingly negative. Like, I didn't see one positive comment there. Just, everybody was ripping on it. And the truth is, I think Robbie knew that. I think Robbie knew that was going to happen. They they weren't ripping on him because he was just covering the art. You know, he was covering the story. And, in fact, it worked because people were clicking on it and, and showing up at his site. But... It is a real story. I won't even call it clickbait because it, the story was exactly as presented when you got over there. But <laughs> I couldn't find a single person that was defending these. It's not even like some people on the left stood up and said, no, 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 this is a good idea. Like I, I think even those on the left were embarrassed by this. They're like, ah, you know what? She's not one of ours. She's she's some weird Netherlands chick. This is, this is some weird European thing. In fact, my response to this in one of the Facebook groups when I saw this post was just, LOL Europe. That's all I had to say. LOL Europe. That pretty much says everything. Though I, I have to admit, I don't want to offend my Euro listeners too much. I have a feeling you guys in Europe don't want to play with these cards either. Yeah, this kind of reminds me. See, you, you gotta watch with messing with the classics. Not, not everything that's classic is racist and sexist. You, you don't have to change it. You, you don't have to virtue signal. You can just leave the classics alone. You don't have to analyze too much. You, you don't have to think about uh, a, a very long time ago when they when playing cards were created 
why there weren't more people of color or why the uh, the queen is in the middle and the king is on top. You don't have to think about this. This is just something you use. It's it's not offensive. There's there's no messaging to it. It's just cards. You, you don't have to read so much into everything. So I, I don't know if you remember this here, but uh, there was a remake of a classic song. Uh, it's, it's cold out, baby. It's cold outside. And th- this is a stupid thing that went around back in uh, I don't know five years ago or so. I started reading some nonsense that baby it's cold outside was a song about rape that it was about a guy who was basically uh pressuring a woman to stay with him and not leave and then 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 he spiked her drink and raped her that that's some somehow someone listened to the song and got that idea now i'm going to play you I, I i probably shouldn't bother with this on a poker show but i'm going to do it anyway why not Give my voice a break. Here's the actual. Uh, here's this is actually from a movie, and uh, is so this was a uh, a movie called Neptune's Daughter, and here is the baby is cold outside original from 1949. I'm not going to play you the whole thing, but I'll I'll play you the beginning and explain what they're talking about. You know, for an evening that started out so badly, it has definite possibilities. No, no, no. Before you drink, you must always say salute. Salute. You know, I... Salute. Salute. You know, on second thought... Yes? I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been hoping that you drop so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands; they're just like ice. My mother will start to worry. Beautiful, what's your My hurry? My father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace so roar. So really, I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't well, hurry. Well, maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on while I fall. The neighbors might. But think. maybe it's bad out there. So, so there you go. This, as you hear the rest of it, at the beginning. She might have some real concern that, that, that she shouldn't stay there. But then she starts saying, oh, you know what? I'll, I'll stay for another drink. Oh, no, but the neighbors, where are they going to stay? This is in 1949. Now, like, nowadays, if a woman stays over at a man's house, uh, no one's going to make a big deal out of it. But uh, in 1949, this is kind of scandalous that, that uh, two unmarried people are, are spending the night together. It happened, of course, but uh, you kind of did it on the down low. You didn't let people know about it. So she was saying, like, what will the neighbors think if they see me leave in the morning? So it wasn't that she didn't want to stay with a guy or even sleep with him. It was just she, she didn't want anyone to know because in 1949, this was considered inappropriate. So the whole song, as, as you'll hear it plays out, is about them coming up with excuses together about why she does have to stay. And Baby, It's Cold Outside was uh, the, the punchline of, oh, it's too cold for her to leave. It's so cold that it's, it's better she just stays with him there because it's, it's, it's too cold for her to go out right now and go home. That that's that's the uh, kind of joke of the whole thing is that together they came up with this excuse about why she could spend the night because she wanted to spend the night he wanted her to spend the night she was worried how it looked and they kind of were working together to come up with an excuse to tell all the busybodies why she stayed over in 1949 when this is otherwise considered inappropriate and so here here it goes from here. Say what's in this drink? Caps to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Your eyes are like stars to right break now. This spell. I'll take your hat 
So you even said I ought to say no, no, no. Not, not I'm saying no, no, no. It's I ought to. So it's, it's all about the morals of the time and them finding a way around that. Two people who want to spend the night together, two adults who want to spend the night together and, and probably have sex and worried what everyone will think and what excuse can we come up with? That, that's, what, that's the whole point of the song. If you watch this scene, this four and a half minute scene, I'm not going to play the rest of it, on YouTube, that's definitely what it is. If you, if you read the lyrics, uh, that pretty much makes it clear even without the context of the video. So it's, it's not about rape. It's not about a guy pressuring a woman not to leave. The thing about, like, what's in this drink, that was her, again, trying to come up with an excuse of, oh, wow, this drink's too strong. Oh, well, I, I can't go now. I'm, I'm, I'm too uh, knocked out from this drink. Guess I got to stay here. It's, it's coming with an excuse to stay there. That was the point of that song. And, and idiot social justice warriors came to see this as an old song about rape and men pressuring women to stay and not let them leave because they want to have sex with them when the woman doesn't want to. It, it, they totally perverted the entire meaning of this musical number. Okay, so let me play you this garbage (laughs) that resulted from the outrage about this. This idiot young Minnesota couple four years ago created their own woke version of this. Listen to this here. I really can't stay. Maybe I'm fine with that. I've got to go away. Maybe I'm cool with that. This evening has been you get home so safe. very nice. I'm glad you had a real good time. My mother will start to worry. Call her so she knows that you're and coming. And father will be pacing the floor. You better get your car up. So really, I'd better scurry. Take your time. Should I use the front or back door? Which one are you pulling towards? The neighbors more? might think that you're a real nice girl. Say, what is this dream? Pomegranate LaCroix. I wish I knew how Maybe I'll help you to out. break this spell. I don't know what you're talking about. I ought to say no, 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 you sir. You reserve the right to say no. At least I'm gonna say that I try. You reserve the right to say no. I really can't stay. Well, you don't have to. Ah, but it's cold outside. I've got to get home. You know how to get there from here. Say, where is my car? I'll go and grab it, my dear. You've really been great. We'll have to do this. Yes, again. I agree. How about the Cheesecake Factory? We're bound to be talking tomorrow. Text me at your earliest convenience. At least I've been getting that far. Unless I catch pneumonia and I'll die. I'll be on my way. Thanks for the great night. Bye. Bye. Drive safe, please. Don't watch that episode of Breaking Bad without me. I won't. I'll save it for you. <laughs> this got ripped badly, by the way, when it came out at the end of 2016. They really thought they were putting out something that's correcting a song about rape from 1949 in a classic movie, and instead uh, they looked like fools because they didn't understand it. There, there's still people to this day who don't understand it. There's still like a lot of people to this day who, th- who think that song is about rape. So this is another example of the playing cards. If you try to find offense in anything, you can. You don't have to find victimhood everywhere. You don't have to find uh, oppression everywhere. Some things are just 
Simple, like playing cards. Nothing wrong with playing cards. Okay, well, I'll tell you what there is something wrong with, and that is Annie Duke being an expert in everything. Annie Duke doesn't play poker anymore, to my knowledge. I have not seen her at the World Series of Poker in ages. I have not seen her at a cash game in ages. I have not seen any evidence that she plays poker anymore. The last involvement she had with poker was a a very negative piece of involvement, which uh, really soured whatever few remaining fans she had on her. That was the Epic Poker League, which promised to have a million-dollar free roll for the top 27 uh, point earners in that poker league. So if you played in that Epic Poker League, you played in those tournaments, you'd earn points for every finish you have that was in the money, and then they added up the points. The top 27 finishers would get to play in a free roll where, and there's only 27 people in it, they get to play in this three-table free roll. The top prize was... One million dollars. I think it was a winner-take-all. Whatever. It was a million-dollar free roll, 27 people. So people said, okay, cool. So a lot of people put time and money to playing this thing. And then the Epic Poker League was very badly mismanaged. Also, Annie Duke and Jeffrey Pollock drew very nice salaries, despite the fact that it was losing its ass. And soon enough, the Epic Poker League, which never really had a realistic path to profit, folded and the million-dollar free roll, which was promised, never took place. And Annie was very unapologetic about it. Jeffrey was very unapologetic about it. They did not offer to give back their high salaries they made during their time at the Epic Poker League. That's the least they could have done, is said, okay, at least we won't profit from this. No, they kept their salaries. They gave nothing to the people who got screwed. In fact, there were others who were owed by the Epic Poker League that uh, also didn't get paid, people who had worked for them. It was a disaster. It was a big kick in the ass to the entire poker community. And this was after Annie Duke was the face of UB during the cheating scandal and made excuses for them when the scandal broke. So uh, she really had a bad reputation by the time this is all over. And she didn't have a good reputation for the way she behaved at the poker table. She tended to be arrogant. She tended to be nasty. Uh, there were stories about her hygiene that wasn't very good when she was at the table. Uh, my experiences with her didn't involve bad hygiene, but she was uh, nasty to me one time for no good reason. In fact, twice she was nasty to me, two different occasions. One of them, it was at a World Series event, and she shouts across the table, Hey, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, um, I don't know who you are, but you've got to watch out the way you're folding your cards, because uh, people might be able to see them. So she was bitching at me that I, she felt I was throwing my cards too high in the air when I'm folding, which I wasn't, by the way, But and she was way across the table. It's not like she could identify my cards I was folding and was telling me. She's like just paranoid that I, that I was th- throwing them slightly too high and people could see them. Now, if she wants to politely say, um, hey, hey, sir, over here in seat four, uh, I noticed you're throwing your cards a bit too high when you're folding. Can you you know keep them closer to the table? I would say, okay, sure. But it's a, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, um, I don't know who you are. But like, why even say that? I don't know who you are. Why? I don't care if she knows who I am. <laughs> so I got that, and then I also had her uh, just berate me at a different event, not a World Series event, but at a different event where I had a short stack. I went all in with a seven. She had ace queen. She went uh, all in over me, and uh, re-raised me, whatever it was. And it was just me and her running it out. Obviously, I wasn't very optimistic about winning the hand with a three-outer. Well, a seven flopped, and nothing else happened, and I 
doubled up. So, okay, I hit her with a three-outer all-in. Whatever that happens, it's part of poker, it's a bad beat. Wasn't deep in the event. She started going off on me about how this is a terrible all-in. Like, why is she lecturing me about this? I was a short stack with a seven, and nobody had raised yet. It's not like she went with a big raise with ace-queen, and I came over the top with a seven. That would be a dumb play. You still don't berate the person, but you can think in your mind, okay, this guy's a dummy. But I was the first one to act. Nobody had come in yet. Everybody folded. Came to me, a seven, all in. She happens to have ace-queen. Okay. She comes over me like she should. And then everybody else folds. And I outflopped her. Fine. I mean, like, how, how could she berate me? But she berated me. And I'm asking, like, I don't understand what I did wrong here. <laughs> oh, she was a real peach. Anyway, uh, Annie Duke has a terrible reputation in the poker world. Terrible. Nobody likes her. And uh, it's like kind of a combination of arrogance and shadiness and uh, a lot of bad stories about her. Uh, Negranu had a lot of stories about her from early in his poker career when nobody knew who he was, that she mistreated him. By the way, I believe those stories. In fact, uh, back in the days when Negranu and I uh, liked each other, uh, Negranu used to come up to me during the World Series and uh, talk about how much he hated Annie. <laughs> He's, he knew he had a receptive audience in me. I, I don't mind Daniel, by the way, when I say liked each other. I, I don't mind him. I don't. My opinion of him has gone down some because of some things that he's done in social media, but I, I don't dislike him. I'm kind of neutral on him. I think some good things and bad things. I don't think he likes me very much anymore because of my uh, my criticism. I don't exist to please people. But anyway, I, I, I don't mind Daniel. He's okay. But I do believe very much the stories he had about Annie Duke when she was a known player and he was just coming up and she was uh, pretty nasty to him. So she does not have a good reputation at all. And since she left poker, which was after the Epic Poker League, that's when she completely exited poker, she has uh, gone on the public speaking circuit. Public speaking and also uh, writing books and uh, writing clickbait articles, all this type of stuff. Uh, usually the clickbait articles are to promote her book, but basically she's posturing herself as like a game theory expert who can then apply the game theory to other areas of life. The problem with this is that she makes a big stretch to do it. You know those really annoying people, like when they're talking about poker and they try to find every way to relate things to poker and it just comes off really cringy? So they say, uh, so uh, this guy will go all in on his decision to do blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, come on. Like, you, you don't have to put a poker term into everything you're talking about if it has to do with gambling. But you, you'll see that. You'll see where it's not even about poker. Like, so, like something about uh, uh, like a new casino starting. So this casino has decided to go all in on this and uh, and, and see if – I, I can't even make something up right now on the spot. But you, you get what I'm saying. Like you've seen these cringy poker references – by people who clearly don't play in order to try, try to relate to people who are watching something about gambling. Annie Duke does a form of that where she takes what she knows about poker and game theory, makes it seem like she's a bigger expert on that than, than she is, and then applies it into other areas of life which are either obvious or are a lot deeper sounding than they really are. 
to where if, if you know poker and if you have any common sense and even don't know poker, you can look at this and say this is just garbage. This is psychobabble. This is pseudo-intellectual garbage. It really is all pseudo-intellectual garbage. Like, even if I put aside my personal feelings about Annie Duke and her time in the poker community and the way she's treated me in my brief interactions with her, when I read these articles, when I've listened to these interviews, and I've, I've played some of them on the show before, like, this really, really comes off as a pseudo-intellectual who is trying to sound deep and original, and they're just spouting trash. Now, I'm not saying she's dumb. I, I will concede that Annie Duke is actually a smart woman. I'm just saying that uh, she is posturing that uh, she can apply poker and game theory to everything in life and just comes up with nonsense, that pseudo-intellectual nonsense that sounds good but really means nothing. So... She recently appeared in Forbes, and Forbes has really gone downhill. Forbes was once respected, and you've heard about the these Forbes lists of the richest people, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is that Forbes has has struggled over the years, and they've had to resort to paid articles and clickbait and stuff like that. So that's probably what this is. I know Calbot loves talking about the clickbait and the, and the advertorials. But anyway, uh, she appeared in Forbes. Uh, It's a pretty bad article, so I'm going to read this to you. This one's about Bitcoin, actually. This is the first time I've heard that she's even involved in Bitcoin. Now, I haven't followed her super super closely, but everything she's been talking about up till now had to do with game theory or poker and how it applies to real life. I've never seen that she's a Bitcoin expert, and... I haven't heard anyone talk about her being very into crypto. And generally, you get to recognize those who are very into crypto that either are in poker or were once in poker. Uh, she's not one of them. I haven't heard, oh, Andy's moved on to crypto. If she da- if she has, great, but I, like, I haven't heard this. So I, th- I think she's aware of crypto, but I think she, again, is just kind of faking it here so she can come off as an intellectual saying something deep, and people who don't know much about this can read Forbes and go, ooh, so Annie Duke, the genius poker star, is also an expert in in crypto, and she has a lot to teach us. So this is what the article's called. Bitcoin and the crypto trading tips from poker world champion Annie Duke. And this is by someone named uh, Stephen Ehrlich, who's, quote, Forbes staff. He writes, uh, it is critical for anyone who is trading crypto to have the best research and information at their fingertips. However, that is not enough. You also need to be disciplined and thoughtful when it comes to trading, especially when the stakes get raised and the market sees some volatility. Few in the world are more skilled at this than World Series of Poker champion Annie Duke. Aside from holding one of the coveted gold bracelets given out to winners each year, she's also won the 2004 World Series of Poker Tournament Champions and the National Heads Up Poker Championship in 2010. Duke is also a highly sought-after speaker and consultant in this field of risk management for investors. What? I mean, she's a speaker, I guess. She's not highly sought-after, but uh, see, she, she's not a consultant for management for investors. She doesn't know anything about anything about this, to my knowledge. She doesn't have experience in that field, in in investments in risk management. She just comes out and, and, and speaks about uh, how she took risks at the poker table and the calculator risks, and you don't always know if you have the best hand, but you try to figure that out, and you, you invest this much in the hand, blah, blah, blah. Like That's what she talks about. She's, she's not an expert in risk management for investors. 
Over her two decades of experience in this field, she has created a framework that can help everyone form, uh, to, she can help everyone from quantitative hedge funds to passive investors understand the risk that comes with investing in volatile industries such as crypto and make tactical decisions without losing their long-term perspective. She also shares some great tips for deciding when you should press a position or strategically close it. See, as far as I know, she has no expertise in this. So then Forbes says, Welcome, Annie. Most people know you as being one of the most famous poker champions of all time. Not really. Most people know her as someone who ripped off the poker community multiple times. However, many are unaware of your prestigious academic background or years of experience as an advisor to some of the most successful investors in the world. Could you please share with us how you got into this industry? Yeah, I can share it with you that she got tired of poker or poker started becoming too tough to beat and she wasn't getting that sweet UB money anymore because of Black Friday and she had to move on to something else and found that uh, using her past poker success and the fact that she's female, she could uh, posture being an investment expert when she really isn't one. So she says, I started off my adult life at the University of Pennsylvania doing five years of PhD work in cognitive science. The only reason I didn't end up becoming a professor is because I got sick right at the end of that. I needed to take a year off from school, and it was during that year I started playing poker. I fell in love with the game, and I did that pretty exclusively for about eight years. But then in 2002, I got asked by a hedge fund to speak to their traders about how poker might inform the way they think about risk. Okay, let's stop right there. So we're going back now 18, 19 years, 2002. And so she she can try to claim that since she left poker after that epic poker fail that she learned about investments and became an expert in that, and we just aren't aware of that. But but she's talking about in 02, she was an expert. She was not an expert in 02. She was, she was someone who was a, a PhD student who didn't even complete the program and then played poker and then just decided to speak to people who invest saying, oh, it's kind of similar to poker. Let me tell you how you approach poker. That's all she did. Now, there are some things you can learn from playing poker. There are life lessons you can learn. There's uh, bankroll management you can learn, definitely. There's risk management you can learn. But these are all pretty simple things. These are all pretty simple concepts. You kind of more learn from experience. You more learn from uh, uh, doing it and what risk you become comfortable with. Like you, you kind of learn more about yourself rather than learning investment strategy. The average poker player is a terrible investor. Most poker players who've gotten involved in investment have lost their ass. Barry Greenstein's a good example. He admits it, too. Ask Barry Greenstein about his time in investing, and he will admit that everything invested in, he lost. And that killed him. And he's not alone. Like, uh, poker players are just not good investors. A lot of them think they are, but most of them are not. That's just not an area of expertise they have. Now, there are exceptions, but being good at poker does not mean you'll be a good investor. It means you have a few of the concepts down that you'll need as an investor, but this does not make you a good investor, nor does it automatically translate. Nor does one skill set mean you'll have the other skill set. Anyway, going on. I'd been thinking about this connection implicitly, but this is the first time that I thought explicitly about the connection between cognitive, cognitive science, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, and poker. This is a very re- real-world, fast-paced high-stakes instantiation of the problems that these disciplines are trying to tackle. I ended up getting referred from that original engagement in 2002 and started to give lots of talks, began consulting, and wrote several books on poker. 
behavioral economics and decision making. Ultimately, in 2012, I rolled out of poker. Okay, well, at least she admits she quit poker. <laughs> I hadn't seen that before where she's admitted she quit poker in 2012. Okay. And made the consultant work much more full-time and continued writing. By the way, notice 2012 is uh, shortly after uh, she got out of UB. Hmm. Today, I'm back at Penn doing research, so I've kind of come full circle back to academics. How accurately, this Forbes again asking her a question, how accurately do you think people assess their investing prowess? What are some of the biggest mental traps you've seen in the course of your career in research? And she wrote, many people do not assess themselves accurately. When you look at most of the main cognitive biases, they fall mostly into the over-optimism category. As soon as you get into something that people feel like they know how to do, and obviously that would be true for investors, most people become overconfident. Ah, see, that is correct. See, that's that's you, Annie. You've become overconfident in your ability to give advice to investors when you really know little about it, and you never knew much about it. You are giving this advice because of some uh, brief poker success, mostly during the poker boom, and now you have crowned yourself the advice giver to investors who already know much more about the topic than you do. You became overconfident. You said, okay, if I can do risk management at the poker table, this means I can advise people on risk management as investors. No, you can't. I mean, I guess you can, but it's not going to be good advice. She says, there's something called a better than average effect. For example, if when I was younger, I was better than average looking, and then the years passed and I really hit the freaking wall, uh, I am no longer better. Wait, that's not what it says. Should say that, but that's not what it says. For example, if you ask people how good of a driver do they think they are in comparison to the population, something like 90% of the people will put themselves in the top half. It's the same thing with investors, most of whom are going to rate themselves more highly than they should. You also get the illusion where people think they have more control over their outcomes than they actually do. The problem in both investing and poker is there's a lot of uncertainty. The world is stochastic. That's one problem, that, that there's luck. The other problem is that there's hidden information. Information can also reveal itself after the fact, too. Sometimes there's information that never reveals itself. That allows an untethering of results from the actual skill when then to the decision. Now, now, these things are all true, but but they don't really advise anyone of anything. This is kind of like an analysis of success in poker, or maybe even an analysis of success in investing, but that's more like unrolling the various factors that went into uh, those who were successful. But that doesn't mean you can just emulate and be successful yourself. That doesn't mean it's telling you anything. It just means that you can see that those who are successful at poker and those who are successful in investing, that there was a luck element, and then there were some other uh, non-luck elements that both went into it. Okay, fine, but that doesn't really help you. She goes on to say, the point is that I can win even though I do everything wrong, and I can lose even though I do everything right. That creates a really huge problem, at least in the short run. It can become especially dangerous when we ascribe our good fortune entirely to skill without accounting for, accounting for luck. She, she basically repeats that same thing over and over in every speech she gives. Like We've heard this before. We've gone over this before on this show, where she thinks that she's being profound by saying, sometimes you make the wrong decision and something good happens. And sometimes you make the right decision and something bad happens. So you need to understand that just because you had a good result, it doesn't mean you made the right choice. Okay, I think we all know that. That's that's nothing new to pretty much anyone. There are very few people who are walking this earth as adults who believe 
that their good decisions always yield good results and their bad decisions always yield bad results. So I don't know why she thinks she's profound by throwing this in our faces every time she speaks. Then Forbes asked her, what are some of the best practices you recommend so investors can structure the decision-making process in a way that is regimented? Can you share anything that's particularly relevant for investors in crypto, which can be especially volatile? Now, now notice she hasn't given any credentials she has in crypto. Notice she, she, she's claimed she, she knows about uh, investing and risk management and poker, but where's the crypto expertise? I don't see any. She, she didn't even claim any. But, but here, here comes the answer from the fake crypto expert, Annie Duke. That's such a really great, great question. Essentially, you want to do the advanced work. Say I've got someone who's interested in Bitcoin. When I'm making that investment, I want to understand why I think the investment is good and actually make that explicit. When it comes to something like investing in something that's highly volatile, such as crypto, this becomes really, really important. You need to separate separate out what was due to luck and the assumptions that you went in with so you can circle back to them later. Okay, let me stop right there. Here's the problem. Unless you got in very early, or unless you were a huge believer in crypto after it went up and then fell way back down. Unless you were one of those people, it's pretty much just luck. And for them, it was luck too. Some of these people who are big believers look like geniuses now, but they would have looked like morons if they could have sold when it was 20K back when it, in late 2017, and then it went all the way down to uh, like 3,000 and looked like it was headed down even further. So the fact that we're at 35,000 now doesn't make them geniuses. It, it, it makes uh, their decision correct. But a lot of this is incredibly difficult to predict with Bitcoin and, and other cryptos. It's very hard. I mean, it's, it's actually easier to predict cryptos that are going to fail. A lot of these altcoins have no chance. But as far as coins that do have a chance, it's very hard to predict when they're going up and down. There's a few times you can kind of get an idea, like when it's getting to a milestone value like a round number, like 20,000, like 40,000. It's a good guess that when it hits that for the first or second time, it's probably going to crash after that because people get uncomfortable and they let it go because they're afraid of a crash. It's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But beyond that, it's very hard to tell when it's going to go up and down. And I've tried to guess it and I've been right sometimes and I've been wrong sometimes. To say you need to know why you're investing in, in crypto I mean, I guess, but, the, but you can know why you're you're still taking a huge chance. No one knows what's going to happen. If you think you do, you're lying or you're delusional. This really means nothing, what she's saying. She also is not an expert in crypto. She goes on to say, you also need to take a second step, which is to determine the conditions under which you'll sell, meaning what would need to happen to tell your assumptions were wrong and this is no longer a good investment. Well, actually, Annie, you've got it backwards. I was about to give you credit for a good point that a lot of crypto believers don't seem to understand, but you went the opposite direction. Something I have said for a long time, and I've heard others say it too, it's not something that I came up with originally, but it's something that uh, I observed and others observed, and that is people who are very crypto rich right now may end up broke if they never sell because if all you do is sit and sit and sit and always wait for it to grow, 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 and you're never satisfied with how high it is, you're never satisfied with it being a peak and selling, but you always think it has further to go, eventually whatever crypto you own is going to be worthless. 
And that, that's, that's bound to happen. Today's crypto is not going to be tomorrow's crypto. I don't mean actual tomorrow, but I mean in the future. In the distant future, maybe even not the very distant future, maybe even the moderately distant future, maybe like 10 years, it's very possible all the crypto as we know it will be different. It'll probably still exist. Like Bitcoin is not really practical for transactions. It's not really practical for cheap, easy transactions for the general public. It's not really compatible with that. This was already tried back in 2017, and it failed. A lot of businesses at the time took crypto, and then they uh, got out of it because it was too volatile, the transaction fees were too high. Uh, there were a lot of problems. They just they didn't want to deal with it. So and there wasn't enough public interest. There's a lot of reasons they didn't want to bother with crypto. So most businesses abandoned taking crypto after 2017. Even today, with Bitcoin at all-time highs, there is really not very much adoption of accepting Bitcoin as payment anywhere. So it's really just something people are collecting with no real practical use other than using it for online gambling. That's really the only practical use at the moment. So eventually this is going to die. It may not die really soon. It may go up further. I'm not saying sell right at this moment. I'm saying that if you hold on to it in perpetuity, you're not going to become a billionaire. If you just hold on, hold on, hold on to whatever your crypto of choice is right now, then it's going to die. Now, the only way you have out of it is if you just believe in crypto, but not necessarily Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or whatever it is that you're into. If when you see a coin which you think is the future, you convert it all to that, sell your Bitcoin, buy that instead, then yes, you could end up uh, super rich. But if your plan is to stick with whatever crypto you have and just expect it's going to go up, 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 up forever, it's going to be worth zero one day. So if she said, if you're going to invest in crypto, you need to come up with an exit strategy where once it hits a certain level that you're going to bail out or you're going to bail out 50% or whatever, that's a good plan to have. But if the plan is to bail out when it falls to a certain level, that might be a mistake because any, first of all, anyone who did that will be sorry now because it's, it's now higher than ever, but we've seen it go up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. So if you really believe in it and if you bought it at a rate higher than it is today, which isn't many people because we're near the peak. But let's let's even look at uh, when it was lower. Let's look when it was crashed down to 3,000 from being up to like almost 20. You may have wanted to hold on to it then saying, okay, well, I've I've lost, uh, let, let's say you bought in at near 20, at the, near the peak. It's all the way down to 3,000. Well, you can say, I just want to get out now and I'll take the remainder of my money. Or you may say, okay, I, I put this money to invest, and I'm, I'm going to ride it out. So if it goes to zero, it goes to zero, but I'm going to ride it out. I, I have committed this for, for crypto, which I still believe in. Maybe it'll rise back up. Maybe it won't, but I'm, I'm going to leave this money there. That's actually more of a reasonable decision than just buying it and holding it and just hoping it goes up, 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 up with no end. So she's actually got it close, but not quite. <laughs> she just, she's on the wrong direction. She's, you, you should decide when to sell on the way up, not on the way down. You should have a goal. What am I trying to do here? How much money am I trying to make? At what point am I bailing out or partially bailing out? Okay, they ask her, turning more directly to crypto, regardless of the models we build and the metrics we use, there will always be a, a degree of uncertainty. 
As much as we try, it's impossible to know everything. What is your advice for finding ways to feel comfortable in that position? Now, first of all, she's like, shit, I have to talk about crypto again. I know nothing about crypto. Come on. Let's go back to talking about uncertainty in in investments and uncertainty in decisions. That's my favorite topic. I'm sure she did not like being pushed back into the crypto question. But something Annie Duke is good at is just spouting off bullshit. Just right on the fly, just spouting off bullshit. So here's what she said. Right now, we know less about crypto than something like tech stocks. But just to be clear, we also know less about tech stocks than we think we do. What? That's the first thing you need to understand. The second thing you need to realize is that the higher degree of uncertainty, the less likely it is that your model is going to be perfectly accurate. See, again, this all sounds good on the surface, but it really means nothing. Like, go back to that last paragraph. It means nothing. What do you mean we know less about tech stocks than we think we do? What makes you say that? Where's the evidence of that? And, and what's this about, uh, you need to realize the higher degree of uncertainty, the less likely is your model is going to be perfectly accurate? Yes, that's obvious. If you, if you don't know much about something, if there's a lot of uncertainty, then yes, it's hard to model it. See, she just states the obvious and tries to sound deep. Under those circumstances, you need to think about mitigating downside outcomes. This is critical because when you have less accuracy in your prediction models, there's a higher probability of receiving an unpleasant outcome. Thank you, Captain Obvious. This first way is to make sure you really have a good quitting strategy. So what do I mean by that? The higher the uncertainty, the more you should value value liquidity. Stop losses are another valuable tool. On the flip side, you might want to change your mind in both directions, meaning under different circumstances, you could want to press your position. Another useful strategy is spreading your bets, so you're mitigating the chance that you're wrong about any single investment. Really? Everybody, I know you've never heard of this before in investing, but diversify your portfolio. I know. It's the best advice you've ever heard. Don't put all your money in one stock. Buy several stocks. So this way, if the one stock crashes, you have other stocks that might rescue you. I never thought of that before. Genius stuff. As a way of grounding this discussion for the readers. What do you mean grounding? The discussion says grounded as it can be. If this was any more grounded, it would actually be in hell. (laughs) <laughs> grounding this discussion for the readers. This is like she's speaking to to 10-year-olds here, grounding the discussion. She said nothing yet that is the slightest bit complex. But as a way to grounding this discussion for the readers, can you walk us through the process of setting up and testing an investment assumption regarding crypto? Sure, she says. There are things happening at the Fed regarding interest rates that could cause you to change what you want to do. If I'm buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, what I need to make explicit is that I believe inflation is imminent. What does that make you look look to see if inflation is actually on near-term horizon or within the time period that I'm saying it would have to occur? Additionally, once I make this assumption explicit, I can also ask what would have to be occurring in the world in the, in the future that would make me want to change that assumption? Putting it all together, if you believe that inflation is going to rise in the next eight years to a level making it worthwhile to invest in Bitcoin as a hedge – then you should also ask yourself, what are the signals that can make me change my mind and not think that inflation was imminent or occur at a high enough level to justify investing in Bitcoin for that reason alone? Okay, let me stop right here. There are many valid reasons to invest in Bitcoin. Trying to hedge against inflation is not one. The problem is that Bitcoin is so volatile that it really inflation, unless it's going to be hyperinflation or stagflation, it's something that is going to be inconsequential compared to what's going on with Bitcoin. 
to give you an example, a Bitcoin today is worth nearly a hundred times what it was worth about five years ago. In five years, it's gone up at a, a, like a hundred t- times, which is great if you own some. But where does inflation play into this? If you've if you've held on to Bitcoin, you've owned since early 2016, and you're sitting here today, and it's worth a hundred times more, and you're very proud of yourself. You're patting yourself on the back. Do you ever think, hey, you know what's good? I really outdid inflation here. No, inflation's irrelevant when you you've made that much on your investment. When your investment has gone up exponentially like this, you don't concern yourself about beating inflation. When you're trying to hedge against inflation, you're putting a more stable investment that you think is going to outperform inflation. You're not going to invest in something highly volatile, which actually uh, makes the whole concern about inflation irrelevant. When you're investing in Bitcoin, you're really not expecting you're going to get some kind of flat return over the years. It's going to jump up and down, jump up, jump, 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 up, up, down, 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 up, 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 you know, it's going to go all over the place. And then when that's all done and you decide it's time to sell, you hope that you're way above where you bought in. It is pretty unlikely you're going to be very close to where you bought in. You're, you're not going to be 8% above where you bought in, most likely. You, you're probably going to be several times lower or several times higher. If you happen to fall somewhere close to what inflation was, then that's pretty shocking. So I don't know what she's even talking about here. There are investments to hedge against inflation, but this is not one. Now, if you're in a a country where there's going to be hyperinflation and the currency is going to become worthless, that's when you invest into Bitcoin. So if you're in one of these banana republics where this can happen – then yes, definitely uh, put your money into Bitcoin. Even with Bitcoin volatility, it's safer. But that's not what she's talking about. She's she's basically talking to first world audiences here, mainly in the U.S., about investing in Bitcoin to hedge against inflation, which is a really weird thing. Okay, so let's go to the next one here. I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of this, but I think we're near the end of it. Since the pandemic hit, there has been an explosion of online trading in the retail sector, which can be very addictive. While it is important to stay aware of what is happening in the market, everyone must find a balance so they do not become overwhelmed and make emotional trading decisions that can prove to be erroneous. Do you have any suggestions for the readers? (laughs) I guarantee she has no expertise in this either, but let's see her answer. The best investors actually are reducing the attention they're paying in the short run, and the reason is the way we make decisions is quite past-dependent. So when you're ticker-watching which is what you would call checking the price at all time. So what happened to grounding it for the readers? I mean, everything she says is just like super, super elementary. She doesn't have to ground anything for the readers. She has to explain what ticker watching is. So when you're ticker watching, which is what you would call checking the price all the time, you're going to feel those momentary ups and downs. They're going to distort decisions you make in quite a bad way. In poker, we call this a tilt. Ah, see, see, now she's putting it back to poker. See, when you watch your stock go up and down, then you can emotionally make a decision, which isn't optimal, and you're on tilt, just like in poker. Boy, we're learning a lot here. Now, obviously, in poker, you cannot see your chips go down. But investing, you can, you can because you cannot, you can just, uh, investing, you can because you can just not check it. What? Let me read that again. It's very confusing. Now, obviously, in poker, you cannot see your chips go down. Yes, you can. Oh, you cannot not see your chips go down. See, this is, 
I, I hope she said this instead of wrote this. This is like the worst written sentence ever. Now, obviously, in poker, you cannot not see your chips go down. But in investing, you can because you can just not check it. Okay, I think I get what she's saying, that in poker, your your chips can't just vanish without you understanding how it's happening, or you it, it can't just vanish without you actually playing a hand and seeing yourself lose. But investing, if you're not watching the stock go up and down, you actually can lose money without even seeing it occur. Okay, who cares? This is important because we know there's going to be natural variances, and people t- tend to make better decisions when they aren't checking it every single day. A better plan would be to decide what you will do if certain things happen in the world, such as the development at the Fed or reaching an up or down price barrier. No, that's not the smart thing to do. See, that's terrible advice. Basically, she's saying that if you own stocks, you should not look how the stock has been moving. And and you really shouldn't even be looking at the reason it's moving. You need to look at events in the world or a development at the Fed. That don't worry about this particular stock. Of course you need to worry. Like if if your stock is crashing, you've got to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me see why it's crashing. Uh oh, this company looks like in trouble. This is going down to zero. I better bail out now. That's very important. Or if it, if it's rocketing up. Uh, why is it rocketing up? Oh, wow, this good news just came out. Well, let me see. Let me analyze this good news. Okay, I think this good news is something that's exciting investors, but in the long run is going to be meaningless. So I'm going to wait till this, what looks like the peak hits, and I'm going to bail out. Or if this good news looks like something that really is going to be long-term good news for that company, then you say, okay, I'm going to stay because I, I see a lot of future. I think it's going to go up even more. So, of course, you got to pay attention to these things. You can't just look for world events or look what the Fed is doing and ignore the stock price. It's horrible advice. Horrible. I I would love to see her stock portfolio and see if she made money or if she even trades stocks. If those things are not happening, don't even look at the price because it's going to screw up your decision making. Nothing good will come of it. I promise you. (laughs) She promises you, folks. She promises you, just like she promised you that if you play all year at the Epic Poker League, you'll get to play a free roll for one million dollars. She wouldn't go back on that, would she? She wouldn't go back on that promise. She promises you. (laughs) Any final thoughts for the readers, they ask her. She says, I would say generally, sort of back to the beginning of the conversation, it's really easy to fool ourselves into thinking we know more than we do. You should actively be seeking information that proves you're wrong. It is easy to find people who agree with investing in Bitcoin as a hedge against future inflation. So we're back to the inflation with Bitcoin again. What what is she talking about? What you should be doing is finding the smartest people you can find who say that's not true. What? That doesn't mean that investing in crypto isn't a good idea, even if an assumption isn't true. But you should want to find that out because that's what's going to help you be a better decision maker. No. The more you're approaching your ideas about investment decisions from the standpoint of asking why this is wrong, the better you're going to be. I, I think what she's trying to say here in, in a psycho babblish way is before you make an investment, try to find out all the downsides to it. Try to find people to tell you why you're doing the wrong thing and then see if you can kind of disprove them in your own mind. I mean, okay, this is all such garbage. This is a combination of psychobabble, the usual, like, not everything luck, not everything skill, uh, the usual bad decisions sometimes mean 
good results and good decisions sometimes mean bad results. Don't read too much into it. And uh, and then a lot of just babble and a lot of terrible advice. Pretty bad. All right, let's move on here. I've, I've had all I can take of Annie Duke. <laughs> Every one of these just... I'm surprised anyone takes it seriously. I'm surprised anyone reads... I bet there's people who read this and think it's compelling, though. I bet there's people that go, whoa, that that's one smart woman. She knows what she's talking about. She's She just really has a head on her shoulders. She just... She has this deep thought process that I can only hope to emulate 10% of one day. I wish I was a creative thinker like her. I wish I was as world aware as she is. What a bunch of crap. Okay, let's talk about Negranu and Polk. They're still having their match. They're past the halfway mark. And Negranu was on a winning streak that it was starting to look a lot better for him. And I was even starting to get some hope that my bet, which is at uh, over four to one on Negranu, actually had a chance where I was actually writing it off for a while because it just looked really bad. It just seemed like Doug was steadily going up and that it, it was just a matter of time before I was uh, going to see Negranu get crushed and that was going to be that. Like I, I thought it wasn't going to be that long until he got so far behind it was unlikely he'd come back. But uh, then some hope, then some hope came for fans of Negranu or ones who bet on him like me. The hope came in the form of a winning streak. And also in that even Doug Polk admitted that Negranu has greatly improved his heads up game over the course of their match. Uh, at Negranu's best point in his comeback... And, and keep in mind, he was down almost a million dollars at one point in December. And it looked like he was pretty much done. It wasn't impossible to come back, but after uh, about 10,000 hands, and they're playing 25,000 hands, so it was about 40% through, uh, Polk was up 957,000 on December 11th. And then finally Negreanu took a good session there and, and 143,000 back. He was still down 814. But he started slowly chipping away at the lead, and uh, by the time they were at the 15,250 mark, so basically another 5,500 hands, Negranu had recovered half of it. So on January 11th, a week ago, Daniel Negranu had just won $132,000 off of Polk in 750 hands and brought his deficit down to only 484,000. So he had a little less than uh, 10,000 hands to go. And uh, he had fewer than $500,000 to make up. And at the level they're playing, and you you see the swings where where they're having a lot of six-figure sessions, low six figures, but still sometimes 100,000, 200,000 wins or losses in each session. All Negrano needed was a few of these, and he was back to even. Now, Polk said the next day, I got to say, Daniel is playing just night and day better than at the start of the challenge. I still think I have the edge, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's pretty low at this point. Got to give credit where credit's due. And then Negrano said, thank you, sir. It's been fun. Wow. (laughs) 
Did you ever picture the two would talk like this? How is this a grudge match? So you, you have Doug on a losing streak on January 12th, who's lost back half of what he's won. And he compliments Negranu, saying he's playing a lot better. And then uh, Negranu says, thank you, sir. It's been fun. These are two that hated each other coming into this thing. So I was getting optimistic that with Doug praising his play, with Negranu having the momentum, that maybe if Negranu's kept getting lucky, that he had a shot of edging Doug in this in the final 10,000 hands. Well, unfortunately, that uh, didn't come to pass, and uh, Polk turned it around the other way. So he hasn't gotten all the way back to where he was before, but he stopped the bleeding. So right now, at the end of uh, exactly 16,500 hands, meaning they have uh, 8,500 left, Doug is back up to uh, 629,882 over Daniel. So in 8,500 hands, Daniel has to make up $629,883, which is a lot, and he's starting to run out of time. Now, he can do it. If he has a few good sessions, he's right there, but it's getting harder. So he really needed to keep the momentum up and get him, like, very close to like a kind of a one session sort of thing where he's kind of one session, one good session away from breaking even. Now I thought actually when Doug praised Daniel, there was a strategy element to it. I had a feeling this wasn't Doug just being nice. I think it was a half compliment and it was also half for strategy. If you tell your opponent who is still making a lot of mistakes, but just getting lucky on you and having somewhat of a comeback, that they're doing great, that they're doing way better, that everything they're doing is right, and that you're only you think you're only slightly better than them now, whereas before you perceived you were way better. This can make them want to stay the course rather than keep improving. So let's look at the reverse. Let's let's go to an alternate universe where Doug, instead of complimenting Daniel after falling on that losing streak, decides to antagonize him, as Doug has for the last several years. Let's say Doug tweeted, yeah, Daniel's won back half the money, but if you take a look at the way he's played some of these hands, if you take a look at how lucky he's been and how how fortunate he's been in big spots, this is going to get given back very soon. This is basically just a fish on a heater. He's made so many mistakes you guys don't even know. So... For those of you who are confident that Daniel has improved and might catch me, think again. He's going to need to get incredibly lucky to do so because there's still tremendous holes in his game that he doesn't realize. So if he says that, Daniel might think, hmm, what are the holes in my game? Hmm, maybe I haven't improved as much as I thought. Hmm, maybe I won this money back because I've just been lucky. So maybe I need to continue studying. Maybe I need to continue analyzing. Maybe I need to hit the solvers again and and figure some things out. So if you compliment Daniel, it's more likely he's going to say, oh, great, look, not only have I been winning recently, but even Doug, who hates me, has publicly admitted that I'm playing way, way better and that he thinks he's barely better than me at this point. Wow, what a compliment from someone who dislikes me. So it's got to be true. Okay, I'm doing something right. I figured him out. All the training's paid off. I'm staying the course. And I have a feeling Doug wanted that. I have a feeling there was something strategic about that tweet. Now, I don't think it was all a lie. I think Doug 
noticed that Daniel had improved. But I think also Doug saw there was uh, still holes in Daniel's game and wanted Daniel to stop improving. If Doug says to Daniel, you've improved tremendously, you're almost where I am, then Daniel may think this is enough. Daniel may think, okay, I don't have to work that hard anymore. I can take the foot off the gas. I can start coasting a bit. I think now I'm, I'm right on par with this guy. Now, why didn't Doug say that they're totally equal at this point? Well, because Doug still wants to maintain the psychological edge that he's the better player. So he doesn't want to admit that he's intimidated by Negreanu or that he thinks uh, he has no edge anymore. He's saying, well, I, I think I have a, a, like a very small edge at this point. But you're, you're way better now, and I have a very small edge on you. It's, it's pretty much going to be luck from here. I, I have a feeling that's why he said it. Everything Doug Polk does is for a reason. I do think that Doug will still win this. He is the better player. He does have a fairly good lead at this point. Not insurmountable, but a fairly good lead. I don't know. Maybe I'll change my mind next week if Daniel puts a few good sessions together and draws very close to even. If Daniel does end up winning this, this will be a pretty good story. Not just for my small side bet, but it'd be a pretty good story that he came back from almost a million down to end up beating what's believed to be the best uh, heads-up no-limit player of all time. Though someone told me, who listens to this show, that uh, Doug doesn't think he's the best heads-up no-limit player of all time. He thought he was at the time he was actively playing, and that he's acknowledged that uh, there's probably some players who are playing today that are even better than he is. He may have said that. That's very possible. But if you ask people, like, who, who's the best heads-up no-limit player... Most people go to Doug Polk. Okay, I got this message here. Someone wants my opinion on something here. Let's check this out. Imagine winning almost $200,000 on a $50 bet, then being told it's all a mistake. Mm. That's what happened to young dad Andrew. He says he shouldn't be punished for a gambling giant's error, and he wants his jackpot. I was refreshing the screen going, no, it's really in there. Like I've, I've won this money. This is just life-changing. Melbourne dad Andrew McCaldy can't get this Whitney Houston classic out of his head. (laughs) He too says he was oh so close to having it all. Bet's a bet and, you know, when you get lucky, it's... That's just how it is. But Andrew didn't foresee how unlucky his luck would be when he placed three bets on American baseball. Red Sox take on the Nats tonight. Second home run of the season. That ball was ripped. Found a same-game multi that I wanted to put on, which involved um, a team scoring four runs or more, and then the total total score for the game to be eight runs or more. I was offered uh, 2,000 to 1 odds on that. To Andrew's surprise, his $50 punt hit a home run. That's a high deep drive left field. That one socked to the seats and over the seats. A home run. 60 grand jumped into his account. Not bad. So withdrew 60,000 and then watched the remainder of another game, which was, was part of the second combination. And you wouldn't believe it. See you later. And when that one, the, the 120,000 came in and, and I withdrew it instantly. You sure would have hit the floor when you saw that amount in your account. Absolutely. This magic moment. Yeah, we were very excited. We were just jumping for joy, thinking this is this is unbelievable. This was just that, that jackpot moment that you know you always dream of. 
until it wasn't, and the goalposts suddenly shifted. At 2.30 on the, on the same day, the tab called me and said that uh, there was an error with the odds, so the, they were removing that, that transaction in total. That phone call, Andrew says, was seven hours after he placed his bets and well after the games had finished. There's plenty of times that I've lost that, you know, I'd love to call up TAV and say, the jockey didn't run the way I thought he would. Can I have my 50 bucks back? You see, the TAB claimed the odds were much higher than they should have been, effectively reducing Andrew's winnings from more than $180,000 to just 200 bucks. By its own embarrassing admission, TAB accepts the obvious technical error was identified and resolved within nine minutes. So why did it take seven hours more to cancel the bet? If I had have lost, would they have called me and said that... They- All right, I, I'm, I'm going to stop this here. I, I can answer this right here. Someone sent me this to play and give my opinion, so I'm, I'm giving you my opinion now. This is something that has happened before in online sports betting. And it's unfortunate, but usually the person betting knows exactly what they're doing. They act all innocent on TV. I thought I won this. Oh, I thought I won $120,000. I, I, I was shocked when they took it away from me and said it's only two hundred. No, no. Here's the truth. Anyone who's bet for even a short time knows what their payouts typically are. And they understand when they place something they think is going to pay them a few hundred bucks and it pays them six figures, they know there is a mistake. Sometimes they'll see these odds and, and place the bet going, oh, yeah, of course I'm going to place this because the odds are tremendous for something that's you know, fairly likely to happen. But that doesn't mean you're going to get paid. That means you're taking advantage of a bug in the system, and every single online book has a term in their service that they don't have to pay you due to a system malfunction or obvious mistake in the odds. Now, that doesn't mean if they offer a little bit better odds than they were intending to, they're going to take it away from you. It's if there's an egregious mistake, where it's obvious it's an egregious mistake, and you bet on it, and you win, what they do is they cancel the bet. Now, to be fair, they actually cancel the bet completely, usually, whether you win or lose. Also, because other people bet <laughs> bet with you, but uh, that's, that's not the point. I'm sa- what I'm saying here is that they cancel the bet when you have bet on something that is going to pay out something obscene. And you're, you're not entitled to the money just because it processed the bet and it finished and it paid you. Now, if you get the money off the site and, and get away with not paying them back, great. But this is very common. And I'm actually on the site's side on this because otherwise you can bankrupt them. Think of an online site that has a $10 million bankroll. Let's say we take one with a $100 million bankroll. It sounds pretty deep, right? It's hard to bust them. Now, let's say their computer malfunctions and allows someone to place a $50 bet to win $100 million. Does that mean that person should get paid $100 million? No, of course not. There has to be a limit. People can't just win unlimited money because the system happens to offer them an insane bet as a mistake. So it's, it's one of these things. If there is an egregious mistake, then they don't have to honor it. There's uh, similar situations in most states in retail where you uh, – let, let's say you see a TV advertised that you believe is worth $1,000. And 
it says one dollar. Says you know sale one dollar or not one dollar. Let's say say it's a sale six six dollars. Okay, so you rush down there to buy it for six dollars. You get there and they say, "I'm sorry, it's actually six hundred dollars. It's a sale. It's a good sale, forty percent off, but it's not six dollars." And you say, "What? Look at this ad right here in the newspaper. It says six dollars for this TV." And they say, "Sir." Obviously, you knew there's no way we're selling this TV for $6. This is obviously a mistake. You know it's a mistake. So we're not selling it for $6. And you could not sue them for not selling you the TV for $6 because that's an egregious mistake. And uh, you are not entitled to them honoring that. However, let's say they advertised it for uh, for 600 when it's normally 1000 and you get down there and they go, oh, yeah, you know, we, we didn't really mean to do that. We meant to list it for 800 Well, there you'd have a claim because a reasonable person could uh, believe that it was selling for 600 A reasonable person could not believe it was selling for 6 bucks. So similarly here, a reasonable person would not believe that they were going to win 124000 on a bet that would normally pay $200. let us uh, listen to the rest anyway. It's only two more minutes. I believe they've made an error. Here's your money back. Yeah, I'd be furious. Absolutely. Live it. On the streets, many reckon it's poor form. If you win something, you should be paying it. Definitely. Oh, it's off. He should have been a wake-up that those odds would have been outside the ballpark. They were faulty odds. It's not like parent company Tapcorp can't afford to pay out. It raked in a whopping $5.2 billion in revenue. But that, that doesn't matter. They, they shouldn't be on the hook for it, is the truth. The last guy who spoke before they're going about, oh, Tabco could afford to pay out. It doesn't matter what they can afford to pay. It matters whether it was an obvious mistake. And that last guy who spoke right before this, he's correct that he should have recognized, I'm sure he did realize, that those odds are screwy. Last financial year. What have they offered you? Uh, initially, there was a, a $1,000 bonus bet. Uh, they then came back with uh, an additional um, $10,000 offer. My lawyer went back to them and said, We'd actually accept 20000 in cash and 10000 in, in bonus bets. Um, and for Andrew still to stay a, a happy, loyal tab customer. But Andrew says after turning to the media, the betting giant suddenly cut him off. He's been offered the odds, he's accepted the odds, he's put down his money and he's won. See, that's his lawyer, but what a greedy asshole. <laughs> he's offered uh, $10,000 and he's demanding thirty when he should have gotten two hundred. So they're offering to give him 50 times what he should have gotten. And he's like, no, 20K plus another 10K in, in free play. Uh, go, um, just go jump in the pond. Terrible. Should have taken the 10K. I think in those circumstances, the onus is on the betting company to pay him out. Commercial lawyer Justin Lawrence is from Henderson and Ball. It's not the responsibility of the punter then to go to the betting company and say, are those odds right? Because they seem really high. A non-sophisticated punter is entitled to say they're high because this is so difficult to win three legs. 34-year-old Andrew... It's not difficult to win three legs. It couldn't be that difficult if it's, if it's a $50 bet that's going to pay 200 It isn't difficult to win three legs in a parlay. It's, the odds are not in your favour. It's not, quote, so difficult. And... The amount that he should have been paid there speaks for itself. This, this is absurd. 
No other book would even offer him 10000 there. The fact that he got offered 10000 is like a big win. And he's, he's still pressing it. Who's now fighting Tabcorp. He's already got his hands full with his son about to turn one and another baby on the way. Our life goal's always been that, that she would be a stay-at-home mum as, as long as we can, as long as we can afford. Um, and this would mean that she could be a stay-at-home mum for two kids for, until they start school. I, I can picture his wife. Um, um, Andrew, what are you doing? You could have had uh, ten grand here. What are you, what are you doing here? You're, t- you're turning it down? You, you keep losing all your money gambling and you, you're finally going to get some back and now you're saying no? You're getting greedy, Andrew. I'm going to divorce you. I don't care if I've got a, a baby on the way and a one-year-old. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a man with some sense to him. <laughs> He's got this fantasy that they're going to pay him $125,000 and his wife can stay at home and not work and... Uh... That's the thing. He's got this fantasy that he's going to live a different lifestyle on the casino's back from a from a mistake. By the way, this is a, a British program, but guess what the name of this show is? I didn't know this even still existed. The name of this show is none other than A Current Affair. Yes, the, the same one, I guess. I guess it's moved to Britain. I don't know if they still have the sound effect. That, that's the only thing I really remember about the current affair. I, I know it was kind of like a news magazine type show, but definitely the most memorable thing about a current affair is. It's funny it still exists over there. So long I play. It's a win-win for Tab and a lose-lose for me. Tabcorp says the extraordinary high price of the odds would have made it clear to punters that it was an error, and because of that, it considers the matter closed. The full statement is on our homepage. I guess this is uh, Australia, not the UK. Still, a current affair exists in the UK, in uh, Australia. Hmm. Who knew? All right, as our little bonus topic. Thank you for the suggestion. Let's uh, let's move on here. Colorado has decided to officially end the $100 max bet that has dogged high-limit bettors over there and poker players in the state. Colorado has uh, tried to prevent problem gambling by putting max bets out there and making it to where no matter what, you cannot place more than the amount of the state-mandated max bet at a time. At one point, it was $5. I kid you not. At one point, no bet could be more than $5 in a Colorado casino. Eventually, that number went up to 100 which, to be honest, covered most gamblers because most people don't make a single bet more than $100. However, this is very difficult for poker because poker, especially no-limit poker, will sometimes have bets that exceed $100. So even if you're playing like 1-2, occasionally you'll get involved in a big pot where uh, you'll want to put in more than 100 on a certain street, and you can't. Now, you can put in more than 100 if it goes raise, 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 raise. You know, like a, it's, it's basically the, more you, the most you can raise on each street is 100. So, yes, someone could bet 100, you could bet 200, they could bet 300, you could bet 400, so it could work like that. But there's no nothing like if somebody bets 100 that you could say, okay, all in for uh, $430. You can't do that because that, that's violating the max bet. The most you can do is is call their bet and put in another 100. 
So that was uh, kind of a pain in the ass for poker and for higher limit gamblers in Colorado. They could not do this. And this was also really holding back Colorado from being a gambling destination for people out of the area. No one is going to come over to Colorado to gamble if uh, it has these type of limits if they are a high-stakes player. So for high-stakes gamblers, they're just not going to come to Colorado for the for the gambling. If they're coming for a different purpose, then sure, but they're probably not going to gamble then if that's the limit of the betting. So there has been a push to get rid of this and just let the casinos set it how they want. The There was then a ballot measure which allowed Colorado to set the betting limit at the local level where the state would no longer get involved. So this is called Amendment 77, and it was uh, voted on during the general election in November. And it did pass, as we mentioned on a previous show. So uh, this transferred the limit decision to local jurisdictions, and they could decide if they want to have a limit or if they want to do away with it. On December 1st, the Blackhawk City Council in Colorado voted to remove the limit. And then uh, Cripple Creek and Central City, the two other cities with casinos in Colorado, also decided to follow Blackhawk's lead lead and uh, do away with that limit as well. So uh, now, since all three jurisdictions there, all three local jurisdictions, have done away with the $100 limit, the $100 limit is gone, and it is allowed for bettors to place a bet of any amount. Now, there can, of course, still be uh, limits set within the game or at the table or whatever it is, but there is no longer a state or local law against uh, having bets more than $100. Uh, there is some belief that maybe this will spawn a poker scene there. This is really held back poker with this $100 uh, bet or raise limit, and it has dissuaded a lot of people from even trying to play poker over there. It just seems very frustrating. There is some belief that maybe there will be a poker scene that kind of explodes over there that has been waiting to break out for a long time. There is another change that has occurred with uh, casinos there that's also within this uh, Amendment 77. There will be some new games that are allowed that were not... Uh, spread before, and among that include uh, Baccarat, Kino, and Paigao. And there will be other table games allowed as well, which were not previously allowed by uh, state law in Colorado. So there's uh, there's also going to be some new games that are offered. And uh, all these changes will not go into effect immediately. I'm not sure why, but they will take place on May 1st. So through May 1st, you're still going to have the $100 limit and you still won't have the games like Baccarat and Pai Gao. But after May 1st, there will be Baccarat, there will be Pai Gao, there will be uh, Kino, if you like that. And you can bet whatever you want, or at least whatever the casino sets to be the limit. Uh, the casinos are pretending like they're not excited to buy this. Sean Dumoulet, who's the general manager of Ameristar in Blackhawk, said to the Denver Post, this is not a game changer for us. 
When I say it's not a game changer, I mean I don't expect it to grow revenue by hundreds of millions of dollars every year. It just allows us to have some parity with neighboring states. Okay, that's that's a stupid statement. It's not a game changer, man. We're not going to make like hundreds of millions of dollars from this. Well, you don't have to make hundreds of millions of dollars from this for it to be a game changer. You, got, you guys are not huge casinos. You guys are not huge operations. You're not tiny, but you're not huge. So it doesn't have to be the factor of hundreds of millions of dollars to be a game changer. The reason that they are downplaying this is because they don't want to make it seem like they're excited that they're going to take a ton of money from whales. They don't want to say, yes, the whales are going to come in. We're going to just smack them from all kinds of money. We, could, we couldn't get much before. We could get $100 per bet, but now we can get large amounts at once from these fish who come in and chunk off their money at our tables. We can't wait. This is going to be a, a great cash infusion for us. If they say that, they'll sound terrible. So they're downplaying it, saying, eh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's, it's not like a big game changer. It's not like we're making like hundreds of millions of dollars from this. I mean, maybe tens of millions, tens of millions but not, not, not hundreds. Maybe like 99.99 million, but not, not hundreds. Not hundreds. So it's definitely a, a downplay. I love how they say... It's just giving them parity with neighboring states. What that really means is, yeah, the other states which allow gambling near Colorado don't have a limit, and people are going there and losing a lot of money there that could go to them. So they're basically saying, yeah, we're going to make a lot more money now, but it's not unfair because the other states are have the same situation, which is true. I'm actually for this change, and I think that's fine that this has happened. I think it's good this happened. And I think it's fine that the casinos are excited by this. But I, I love the BS downplaying as if they don't really care. Eh, you know, it's okay. You know, we'll make we'll make a little extra. It's not like $100 million, but a little extra. Just a little. How much? Just a little. Just a little. Colorado has 33 casinos. In 2019... They combined for $833.6 million in gambling revenue. That is the 33 casinos. Some are larger than others, of course. And there's, they're only in uh, three uh, different cities. That is uh, Blackhawk City, Cripple Creek, and Central City. Starting May 1st, Colorado will be a real gambling destination. Are you excited? Actually, uh, I've heard that uh, some games in Colorado are actually good. Someone told me that. Someone told me that like they had a Limit Hold'em game that I was told was very good there. Because Limit Hold'em, they could spread. Like They could spread 30-60 Limit Hold'em because it was, there was never a case where each bet was more than uh, $100 over the previous one. So Limit Hold'em was actually not that badly affected by this. So I guess there was a 30-60 Limit Hold'em. I think it went at Blackhawk, and I was told that was a really good game and that none of the good Limit Hold'em players were there because all the good Limit Hold'em players are in uh, Atlantic City or, uh, or L.A. or in Northern California. But you, re- you really don't have – and in Minnesota, too. Can't forget Minnesota. So they're pretty much in one of those four spots if you're a good limit hold'em player. And if you're not, then you're probably online. So like locals in Colorado or people who visit Colorado just, just suck at limit hold'em. So someone I know went there and played 30-60 and said, oh my God, this is a tremendous game. And they were trying to urge me to come and play that 30-60 game there. And I said, ah, it's just too far to go for 30-60. Like I believe you, it's just too far. Like if I'm going anyway, sure, but too far otherwise. 
Okay, I'm going to take a break, and uh, we have some topics left, and then we'll uh, continue those and and be done. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraudulent Radio. We will be back eh, kind of soon. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back. If you want to text me, 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. From the 916, why did Annie Duke give you an attitude for beating her ace-queen? You beat her straight up, so why the wine for her? Yeah, that's what I wondered. <laughs> I, I still don't know the answer to that question uh, 13 and a half years later. From uh, the 314, Druff, someone did a Kickstarter last year for similar cards called Queen G raised half a million. So apparently there's a market. Hmm, didn't know about that. I think that this girl in the Netherlands messed up then. She could have made 500 grand instead of selling these at uh, 10 euros a pop. And Kickstarter is usually kind of a scam. It's kind of a semi-scam. I don't believe in stuff like that. Usually it's a way to get other people to uh, pay for your risk and then they get nothing out of it. I mean, if you successfully pull one off, great. But for the most part, I would not advise donating to those. Unless it's like a personal friend. But then just give them the money directly. You don't need, you don't need Kickstarter. 
Okay, so uh, let's move on here. The next topic is the story of Evander Kane, who is an NHL player, National Hockey League. He plays for the San Jose Sharks. Now, I will admit that I am not an NHL aficionado. I'm not a person who is uh, very familiar with the NHL. We have a guy on our site named Simpdog, who is a big NHL fan. Of course, he's from Canada, and he bets on the NHL, and I've seen him go on some nice uh, winning streaks with the NHL. I've even copied some of his bets in the past. But I am not really an NHL fan. I mainly am into baseball and basketball. This is an interesting story because it combines the poor uh, the poor money management skills of professional athletes at times, which definitely applies here, and degenerate gambling, which, of course, really fits in well with this show. So sometimes you've seen professional athletes who make very large sums of money, much more than any of us make or ever will make, and you think, okay, these guys have got to be set for life. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like to earn that type of money every year. And yeah, you lose some back to taxes, and yeah, you got to pay your agent commission. So it's not quite as much as it appears, but it's still a hell of a lot of money. And you would think that even though their career ends when they're in their late 30s or early 40s or mid-30s sometimes, still, they should have more than enough money to live very well for the remainder of their life. But sometimes that does not happen. And often they just live for the moment and they just shoot off the money because it's there and they kind of neglect the fact that this is not going to go on forever and that they're going to age out of being a professional athlete and then they will not be making any more money. Or if they do make money, it'll be very, very little. It'll be from appearances and uh, stuff like that. So the smart thing to do if you're a professional athlete, there's actually two smart things to do. Number one, save your money. Do not spend lavishly. You don't have to live like you're poor, but do not spend like money's going out of style. Just buy yourself some nice things, live in a nice house, buy a nice car, and that's pretty much about it. <laughs> don't just go wild with the gambling and the crazy spending and, and having entourages around you and just throwing money everywhere because it will vanish. No matter how much money you make, you can waste it. There's, there's never any sum of money you can make that can't be wasted very quickly. Even Jeff Bezos could waste all his money if he really tried. He wouldn't, but he's very good with money, but uh, he could. But these guys don't make Jeff Bezos money. They just make many millions. And that's very easy to waste if you're not careful. So that's the first piece of advice I would give them. The second piece of advice is don't get married. I don't think he got married, so I think he, I think he followed that one. But yeah, don't get married young. Wait, wait till the end of your career. The problem with getting married when you're a professional athlete, and that doesn't have to do with the story, I'm just mentioning it, is that it's pretty much lose-lose. Uh, first, you're going to be on the road a lot, and it's hard to have that type of relationship anyway. It's hard to have a relationship where you're gone so much. Some people can do it, but it's it makes the relationship much tougher, and relationships are tough as it is. There's enough challenges in an average relationship that you don't need the extra challenge of being gone for long periods of time. So the solution is don't get in serious relationships when you're 
having that type of schedule, knowing that it's going to end probably around your late 30s, so there's plenty of life left to live when you won't be doing that. It's not like you'll have a career where you're traveling forever. You're gonna, it's going to be over, and then you'll have uh, nothing but time after that. Uh, but also, what ends up happening is these guys have a lot of temptation. They're on the road a lot. They want to have sex. There's beautiful women who recognize them, or even if they don't recognize them, once they hear the professional athletes are very impressed and and want to have sex with them. So they have a lot of opportunity to have easy sex with a lot of very attractive women when they're on the road. And here they are. Their wife's not with them. They are going to have to go a while without sex if they don't cheat. So some of them do. And I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that's what ends up happening with a lot of them. There's some who don't, but many who do. So the solution to this is very simple. You just don't get married until your career is over or near over, and you don't get in a serious relationship. There's plenty of time for that later. And then you can screw around all you want. You can have all the sex you want out on the road because you're not cheating on anybody. And that's and then there's the third thing is that you don't uh, you don't end up losing a lot of money in a divorce settlement like Barry Bonds did. I don't feel sorry for Barry Bonds because he's a jerk, but his his wife was also a gold digger. So it was, it was <laughs> neither party in that divorce was very sympathetic. You had a, a jerk, an arrogant jerk who's. Uh, thought uh, incredibly highly of himself and looked down on everybody. And then you had a, a gold digger who only married the guy for money. And then when the divorce happened, tried to squeeze every penny out of him. So anyway, the the best approach is you don't open yourself up to any of that during your career. And then once your career's over, then you, then you can do all this. You won't be on the road. You'll be older. You'll be more mature. You'll have probably gotten all the uh, casual sex out of your system by then. Also, as far as the, any divorce settlement is concerned, you'll have already made your money while single, so that money can easily be protected since you made it prior to the marriage. So these are all reasons not to get married or even have a relationship, a serious relationship when you're a professional athlete. But some of the guys can't help it. They meet a girl they like, they fall in love. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's easier said than done of, okay, well, I'm just going to mess around but not have a real relationship. So a lot of these guys get married anyway and then... A lot of these don't end very well. But uh, this is not really a story of marriage. This is actually a story of just degeneracy. This is a guy who just did not manage money well. And despite the fact that he's pulled down a lot of money during his career, he ended up uh, blowing uh, all of it. Now, he still has some coming to him. So that's the only upside to this story. But anyway, Evander Kane, K-A-N-E, is a hockey player for the San Jose Sharks, and he's 29 years old. In 2018, he signed a contract for $49 million for seven years. Now, that doesn't mean he makes $49 million a year. That means he makes $7 million a year for seven years. It may be structured a little bit differently than that, but that's what it averages out to be. He also made uh, good money before that, I think he made uh, tens of millions prior to that. Yeah, he made uh, $53 million total in his 11 years in the NHL. He came into the NHL right out of high school. So even though he's only 29, he's played for 11 years, and he's averaged uh, almost $5 million a year. And now he's being paid more than he was before. He's getting about $7 million a year. Uh, that The first three years of that contract have already been played out, but he has four left. And he's making uh, 
seven million a year going forward. So at least there is still money coming in, but it's amazing that he made that much money and blew it all. Now there's a, you've heard of a picture being worth a thousand words. There's a picture in an article I'm reading right now on a site called None of the Two News. It's, it's N-U-N-A-V-U-T news.com. None of what news, which has a, an interesting picture of him. He's, he's standing on, uh, some kind of balcony. I think it's at the Cosmo. I think he's on a Cosmo balcony in Las Vegas and he's holding up, uh, big stacks of cash in his hand on this balcony on both hands. One of them he's holding up to his ear, almost like he's talking on the phone with, with the cash and the other one he's holding in his hand. So that that pretty much says everything. Now, this was taken in 2012, but people who love showing off with cash like that are also usually the same people who are very bad with money. If, if showing off all the money you have is important to you, that usually means you're not going to spend responsibly and all you're going to want to do is uh, enjoy what that cash can do for you in the short term. And that definitely was the case with him. He's being sued by a bank called Centennial Bank in Arkansas over unpaid interest in principle of $8.3 million. And that's based on a loan he took in September 2018 for $3.9 million. So it's already uh, racked up in that time to be about double because of the interest of $8.3 million he's being sued for. And he used his contract, his seven-year, $49 million contract that he signed with the San Jose Sharks in May of 2018 to, to begin on the 1819 uh, NHL season. That was collateral for the loan. But what happened was he kept taking more and more loans against the contract. So Centennial Bank thought they had a pretty secure loan here, only to find out that uh, they're going to have to get in line. So they, they want a court to make sure that uh, the Sharks do not deposit any payment into his account, but instead that they uh, they give it to them. But anyway, after that, it was looked into further what's going on with his finances. And uh, the online uh, sports news site, it's a premium site called The Athletic, it's actually well regarded. I don't have a subscription there, but sometimes I kind of wish I did. They they do a lot of in-depth uh, sports reporting at The Athletic. But uh, a reporter named Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic reported that uh, Kane filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy in California with $26.8 million of liabilities and only $10.2 million in assets. <laughs> And I say only in quote. So he has ten million bucks in assets, and yet he's still way in the hole and filing Chapter Seven because he has uh, almost twenty-seven million of liabilities. This is a guy who's twenty-nine years old. Uh, among them, uh, two hundred fifty-six thousand dollars in unpaid taxes, uh, almost eighty thousand to American Express. Uh, he owes agents' fees of uh, five hundred twenty-eight thousand, and uh, you'll like this one. He owes $1.5 million to the Cosmo for gambling markers. I know you're shocked that this guy is not a responsible gambler. There are 47 creditors total, and uh, 
he actually has uh, seven dependents that he lists, including his mom and dad and grandmother and two uncles and sister, and a ch- and he has, he has a little child too. I don't know. Like, why are all these people dependents? It sounds like they're leeches to me. All these uh, adults. I mean, maybe his grandmother, who's got to be very old, but why are his mom and dad, who couldn't be that old, why why are they dependents here? It sounds to me that everybody's just riding on the gravy train because he was so free with money. There's also some belief that in the uh, that he's not going to be playing. He may not play this season because of uh, of COVID. And because he has a newborn daughter. Now, the truth is, there's not much danger to newborns from COVID, even though it seems like there would be. The slightest thing can kill a newborn. The, the slightest illness can be a big problem for them. So you really got to panic whenever your newborn gets sick because they're so tiny and fragile and their body really can't take a lot. So there's a, the, the first year of your life is the most dangerous year of your life by far until you get very old. Once you get very old, then those become more dangerous than being a newborn. But uh, there's way more deaths between ages zero and one than for many years going forward. So obviously he's afraid of passing COVID to his newborn daughter and, and killing her, which is a valid concern. But if you look, I think there's been 43 deaths of infants under one in the country from COVID. And yeah, that really sucks that 43 babies died that way, but... Obviously, the risk is very low that just like kids who are not newborns, they just are uh, – newborns are more susceptible than kids who are over one, but they're still much, much safer from COVID than most other people. Like a newborn is actually much safer from COVID than I am, even though it doesn't feel that way. Like you, if you heard a newborn got COVID and you heard I got COVID, you'd be much more concerned for the newborn but that wouldn't actually be correct. The correct would be a concern for me because it would be a much higher chance I would die than the newborn. But I, I can understand why it kind of feels like the newborn is more vulnerable because they just seem so vulnerable to everything. It's just COVID's kind of an exception. Anyway, he may not play because of that. Uh, I don't think he's that worried about himself because he's only 29 and he's healthy. But uh, if he doesn't play, he doesn't get paid. <laughs> so that might That might be another issue where he does not going to get as much money as he thought. He posted a lot of photos online showing off all the money he had and what he was buying with that money. So he was in a private jet in one of the pictures. He was posing with Ferraris. I don't know if he actually uh, bought the Ferraris or if he's just posing with them. I have a feeling he probably bought them. That Yeah, he just basically blew all his money and there really isn't an excuse for it. Some people have been saying this is similar to the situation with Jack Johnson. I'm not talking about the singer. There was an NHL player named Jack Johnson who also blew all his money, what it appeared to be, but it turned out it was not really him, that his mom took advantage of him. He convinced her son, Jack, to give her the power of attorney, and then she and her husband uh, took tons of high-interest loans against his contract and blew it on just a lot of crap. So so he had no idea this had happened, but because he gave her power of attorney, he had no choice. If she just made bad decisions with it, that's his fault. So, uh, but she didn't forge anything. He he gave it to her and she just gave her the power to do it and she misused it. 
She just wasted his money. So uh, he's he's basically been broke because his mom and her husband blew all the money. So that's a piece of shit mom to have done that, but uh, that's a little more understandable. It, it was stupid of him, and I, I have to think he must have known his mom wasn't the most responsible. Like, I know if I had that type of money and I gave my mom power of attorney, there's actually zero chance, I mean, not just a small chance, actually a zero chance that would ever happen. And I think you could probably say the same for your mom. But uh, this Jack Johnson's mom was not a very nice woman and screwed her son badly. But nothing like this happened to Evander Kane. He just blew it all himself. And as I said, the only upside here is that he has some years left on the contract. So uh, I guess there was the 1819, the 1920 season. So I guess he's actually in the third year of it, in the uh, 2021. And uh, it's not clear if he's going to play. I guess he still has four years after that. So if he lives a more Spartan lifestyle, he can probably pay off most of this. But it, it looks like yeah, he filed for bankruptcy. He's seventeen million in the hole. So truthfully, even if he saved all every penny he made, once taxes came out of it, he really wouldn't end up with that much anyway. So this is a big mess, and it's interesting that uh, a little of this had to do with uh, with gambling at the Cosmo. I'm surprised that's all he lost is one point five million. I would think a guy like him would probably lose more, but maybe maybe he'd already blown. A lot more than that, this is just markers he took out. Remember, markers are not necessarily uh, all he lost. That's just what he owes them. And just like everything else, the Cosmo thought he was good for it because he was an athlete with a contract that's seven years, 49 million, lasting years into the future. And uh, he saw what happened there. So the Cosmo wants their markers paid. Uh, I also, I haven't seen him gamble, but usually these athletes who are very bad with money when they sit down to gamble, they are the opposite of skilled gamblers. They are really bad. They don't have no idea what they're doing. So casinos love them because not only do they bet big, but they are highly negative expectation. They just don't even understand the games very well, nor do they really make an attempt to learn. And often they're drunk, so these are these are perfect marks for the casino. Also, the casino knows how to treat them. The casino knows how to treat them like rock stars and kiss their ass and give them everything they want. And they feel like kings for the moment. And then they lose all their money there. But it's interesting how this can happen and how fast people can run through money. We will see what uh, ends up happening with uh, Evander Kane, his career and his finances. Be sad for him if he ends up with his whole career. I guess, I guess he is playing. I see he's played uh, two games. Yeah, he played originally on Atlanta starting the 2009-10 to 10 season. He must have been injured in 2017 because he only played eight, 17 games. But every other year he played all or most of the season. So, all that could be for naught. Can you imagine? Already made $53 million and has four more years of $7 million each and may walk away with very little money. Also, I'm, I don't think he's going to learn from it. I think he's going to blow his money. I've seen people before who say they've learned their lesson with bad money management, and then they go right back to their old habits. 
they just can never hold on to money. They they have the short period of time where they go, I was so stupid. Why couldn't I manage it better? If I ever get money again, I'm going to do it differently this time. And his, with him, it's not an if. He sees money's coming in, but then they get it and they can't help themselves. And there's just an attitude you have to have about money. You have to have respect for it. You have to value it and you have to understand how much is coming in now, how much is likely to come in later, how you are going to spend it, uh, how much you're going to need for your lifetime after this, if it's going to pretty much stop coming in at a certain point, and also figure out the value of everything you're getting. Do you really need this? Is this really necessary? Is this something that's a waste? And just develop an attitude where you get things you want, but you don't overdo it, even if you're rich. And then when you want something, the money's there for it and the spending is not irresponsible. But just blowing it, blowing it, blowing it, it's going to be gone very fast. And you know, I once heard from someone who was very wise that sometimes you can make a good decision and you end up with a bad outcome. Sometimes you make a bad decision, you end up with a good outcome, and then sometimes you think that means that the bad decisions are actually good decisions, and you keep making them, and then you no longer have the luck that gave you the good outcome, and you get a bad outcome, and you wonder, hey, what happened here? (laughs) If you just jump to the segment and you didn't listen listen to the earlier show, you won't know what I'm talking about. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Let's talk about the $13 million heist in South Korea. Pretty interesting story. In uh, South Korea, they have a casino. It is called the Landing Casino in Jeju. J-E-J-U. Jeju. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't speak Korean. Anyway, they uh, reported to their investors, the Landing Casino, that $13 million was missing. By the way, if you wonder if the Jeju uh, Landing Casino has any poker association, they do. They actually have hosted the Triton Super High Roller Series and the Poker Stars Red Dragon. Anyway, uh, there is a prime suspect in the theft the prime suspect is a woman named, uh, who uh, apparently uh, stole the cash and since the end of last year has gone on vacation and not come back. I don't know if she's just disappeared or if she's uh, has a lot of vacation built up to where she uh, is actually really on leave. They had footage of the theft, but somehow... The surveillance footage got erased. $14.56 billion won, South Korean won, was taken, which is worth about $13 million. That is $14.56 billion, but a won is worth like uh, less than – a thousand won is worth less than a dollar. So that's why $14.56 billion becomes $13 million. Anyway, they claim over seven to eight months that she smuggled this out of there. The reason that the casino didn't catch this was that the safe 
that she was stealing it from had a very large amount of cash in there, and they weren't keeping track of it. So they just had the safe with a ton of cash sitting in there, and she had access to it, and she just kind of was uh, smuggling it out. Now, they knew how much was in there, but they weren't counting it. They weren't actively counting what was in there. So that's how they discovered it was gone eventually, but over a period of about eight months, she was able to smuggle out uh, about $13 million. She Now, what's interesting is that uh, a lot of this has been found. They found uh, some of it, actually, I guess a little of it, in, in the casino's VIP room safe. And they went to a place where the suspect used to live, and they found about uh, 4 billion won, which is uh, you know, a little less than than $4 million, probably like 3 point something, $3.6 million or so. And then they also found about uh, another $7 million worth, 12, 12 billion won, from the safe that they found in the VIP room. So she hadn't even actually removed it from the casino. And then another $4 billion won from a place she used to live. So the problem is they're still out about $2 million. Because this uh, 12 billion won they found was uh, not quite what was stolen. What they found, the, the money they found was actually in uh, 50,000 won bills, which is uh, equivalent to like a $45 bill if such a thing existed. It's, it's even less than a $50 bill. So 50,000 won sounds like a lot, but it's like a $45 bill. So they found like a lot of these 50,000 won bills and they noticed that the bills were new, which they actually felt was significant, that these were new bills rather than old bills. They thought that perhaps she has accomplices to this whole thing. I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm not sure how they think that new bills equals she has accomplices, but that's what they said. Now, it took a lot to get all these bills out of that safe. Now, again, some of it was actually in the uh, casino still. They moved it probably as an intermediate place to this uh, VIP room safe. But still, because these bills are only worth about $45 each and about $13 million was stolen, obviously that's a lot of bills. So that's over 300, or almost 300,000 bills, which is a lot. You know, if, if I don't know if you've carried like a lot of bills before, but it starts to get very bulky. And even if there's that many, they can get heavy. I've never carried so many that they get heavy, but I did carry so many that it was bulky. So I know what that's like. I once carried uh, 140k in cash, and it was pretty tough to carry. There's just a lot of bills. Maybe that's one of the reasons they think she had help, because it was calculated that it would be about 600 pounds to carry 300,000 notes. Of course, this is over a period of eight months, so she definitely could have spread that out. I, I would agree that this woman probably couldn't carry 600 pounds worth of bills, but if she spread these out, then she probably could. Uh, there, it was believed, though, that she had an accomplice, and actually two, two accomplices. Uh, one, they believe, is in China at the moment, and uh, another one is in South Korea and hasn't left yet. They claim they also think that she is, uh, quote, overseas, maybe in China, maybe uh, somewhere else. So they may not ever find her to arrest her. They don't know where the remaining cash is. 
because there is about uh, two million dollars worth of cash that is missing, and uh, they are wondering how they're going to get that cash out of the country, given all these uh, coronavirus restrictions. How it's hard to travel around uh, between countries, and uh, there should be a lot of extra scrutiny with coronavirus restrictions. All that they're saying, isn't it going to be found if they're carrying this much wine out of the country? I can actually think of a way you can do it. You could mail it, taking a bit of a risk, but that's one way to get packages out of the country. And yeah, you, know, you, you put something else in the box to make it look like it's just something else that isn't very desirable for people to steal. And then you bury cash at the bottom and you mail it to where you're going. That has been done before, by the way. Kind of suck for them if it got lost in the mail. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying they did that, but it does seem like they can't find the last $2 million that was stolen and they can't find this woman and it's believed she's left South Korea. So I have a feeling they won't recover it. I think the reason they didn't get the remainder out is that she probably suspected they were onto her and she bailed. And she probably just didn't have time to get the money she had stashed at the place she was staying and she probably did not have time to get that money out of the VIP safe. My guess is that she moved it from the uh, vault into the VIP safe and then every so often she would move the cash out of the VIP safe out of the casino and then would store it in her hiding place in some place she used to live. Pretty irresponsible for them to leave people with access to that safe without some better checks and balances on this. It kind of looks like she just had the opportunity to go when she went she wanted, and they were not counting the money very often, so eight months passed without them noticing it was gone until they did an audit and found it was missing. All right, let's talk about Howard Tahoe Andrew, who passed away, an old-school poker player, well-liked in the community. He was born in 1934, I do not see a cause of death. Of course, whenever you hear of someone passing away these days, especially someone who is old, you wonder, is it COVID? I don't know. They have not said it's COVID. And at the age of 86, uh, it could be from one of many causes. You know, people were dying at age 86 long before COVID. And there's just a lot of things that can kill you at that age. So he has two World Series of Poker bracelets, the first one was in 1976, and uh, he actually won a second bracelet that same year. At that point, he was uh, thought to be one of the better players who was not a pro. He was actually an engineer, an industrial engineer, and uh, as far as players who were not pros that didn't support themselves with poker, he was considered one of the best in the uh, mid to late 1970s. The 1978 World Series of Poker Media Guide said that uh, Howard Tahoe Andrew is one of the World Series of Poker's most formidable non-pros and industrial engineer with a daredevil reputation. Now, the fields were much smaller then. He won his first bracelet in No Limit Hold'em and he bought in for $1,000 how much was first prize in this uh, bracelet event? $1,000 buy-in? Uh, 
Yeah. That's no, not his fault. That's the size. The World Series was much smaller back then. But uh, there were only 56 entrants, and he got half the prize pool of $28,000. Then they had uh, some kind of non-pro event, which I don't know how you even classify who's a pro and non-pro, but uh, he beat uh, Dewey Tomko, who I guess wasn't a pro then either, to uh, win in a $2,500 event. So that, uh, and those are the first two tournaments of the WSOP. I think, I think he might be the only one to have won events one and two in any World Series. I can't think of anybody else has done that. After that, he didn't win any more bracelets, but he did win a participation trophy in a way. He played 45 consecutive World Series of Poker. And not just World Series of Poker, but main events at the World Series of Poker. And the World Series says that nobody else has done this. Nobody else has played 45 straight years of the main event without missing one. There was some kind of uh, strike for a few of the years against Binions, like I think in 80 or 81 or something. There, there were some years where some of the old school players like Doyle chose to sit out and he did not. So this allowed him to be one of the few old school players to actually play uh, and you know, to not only play beforehand and play a long time after, but also play those years where, where people sat out because of uh, some kind of protest. I don't know what that was about, but that's part of the reason he got a leg up there as far as setting this record. But he did play all the way through 2018, at which point he was uh, 84 years old. And uh, he ended up cashing 51 times total, and he had more than 200 caches. He finished second at the Grand Prix of Poker main event in 1987. I haven't heard of that before, but it was a $10,000 main event. He finished second for twenty-five or for $250,000. Uh, he was up against, uh, among others, Jack Keller, who won three bracelets, including the 1984 main event. He was up against Thor Hansen, who had two bracelets, and then uh, Poker Poker Hall of Famer Eric Drache. So all three of them were uh, at the table with him, but he was the second-place finisher at that one. That was not a World Series event, but that was his biggest uh, individual win as far as cash. As I said, a lot of people liked him. Linda Johnson tweeted... R.I.P. Howard Tahoe Andrew, you are an asset to the poker industry. I enjoyed competing against you over the years. I enjoyed traveling the world with you on many cruises. I'm proud to call you my friend and will miss you. Dan Ross, who is uh, one of the younger guys. I mean, he's not young, but he's not as he's much younger than Linda Johnson. He's a poker media guy. wrote, uh, ladies and gentlemen and poker players alike, raise your glass and toast to the memory of one of the game's great gentlemen, Howard Andrew Tahoe. You already missed my friend. And uh, Matt Savage wrote, we lost a true poker legend. Rest in peace, my friend. Todd Brunson wrote, he, st- he still called me kid and young whippersnapper. LOL, always happy, just a beacon of positivity. Lon McCarran said that uh, Howard Andrew 
was he said uh, this makes me sad played with him so many times always a wonderful demeanor and a caretaker of a great deal of poker history while making it himself I will miss you Tahoe so this wasn't a guy who like, absolutely killed it at the tables but it was a guy who lasted a very long time uh, didn't even start out a pro I don't know if he was ever a pro I think he was just a guy who played a good deal but was but had a regular career as an engineer and won back-to-back bracelets. He probably has a record that will never be broken. I imagine nobody's ever going to win events one and two again, even if you eliminate the events that aren't open events, like the casino employees. If you take the first two open events, given the size of the field these days and given that these events one and two tend to conflict and you probably can't even play them both anyway all, to, all the way to the end, it's probably physically impossible to win the first two open events at the World Series. So maybe he did, you know what, he actually didn't win an open event. I guess the second one was a no pro event. So I guess it's just the first two events. But okay, fine. First two events of any kind, I, I still don't think it's possible because they will conflict. Whereas back then they did not. So I think that's a record that will not ever be broken. Looks like a lot of people liked him. I didn't know him. This happens with these older poker pros and poker figures in uh, history here, they're aging out, and unfortunately, uh, some pass away. He did manage uh, $1.5 million in caches over the years. So even though the biggest cache was only two fifty k, because he cashed more than 200 times, he, it did add up. I don't know if he was an overall winner in tournaments. You know how tournaments go, that the buy-ins add up. The last tournament he cashed in was in 2020. Now, you may wonder, was he actually risking COVID at this age? No, the last one was on uh, January 15th, 2020. So it looks like he was actively playing all the way through when tournaments just stopped. Or maybe he was just too afraid to continue going because of the danger of COVID to someone his age. But he did cash in 74th in the uh, monster stack at uh, Thunder Valley in the Sacramento area. It's a good thing his last cash wasn't at Stones. It's good, it's good it was at Thunder Valley. But yeah, he at the $400 No Limit Monster Stack, he cashed uh, 74th. And at uh, in uh, 2019, on July 28th, in Lincoln, there was uh, the Anti-Up Poker Tour. He, he was fourth in the $235 Big O event. Now, he only got $740. That must have been a small field. And he, he cashed in some, a, few, a few others there. Uh, he got 17th place in, 19, in 2019 at the Seniors 50-plus Deep Stack. Now, that's interesting because I'm not seeing any World Series caches that year or in 18 or in 17. You have to go back to 2016, and that was a circuit World Series cache. The last actual World Series cache he had was in uh, 2012 in PLO. He got 29th place for uh, almost $6,700. That would seem to indicate to me that he either didn't have that much money at the end or just didn't have it in him to compete the long days at this advanced age. Now, remember, he did play the main event every year from uh, 1974 through uh, 2018. 
So we know he was at least participating in the main event. I don't know what other events he played, but he it's not like he wasn't showing up to the World Series. But the last time he cashed in any World Series event was in 2012, but he was playing a lot of smaller buy-in events, usually ranging from like $100 to $400. A lot of those caches you see throughout uh, 2019, 2018, uh, 2017. So he was actively playing. It doesn't look like he's playing constantly, but he was, he's actively playing to where he's – there's not a long time passing between caches, sometimes a few months, but not much more than that. But yet you just don't see any big buy-in events there, except I did see in, in uh, 2016 he entered and cashed a, a circuit main event for 1675, and he was playing the main event every year. But again, it may be age because – it does get tough to sit there for these long days when uh, you get older. And he may have just decided it's too hard, and maybe he decided the competition at the World Series of Poker, that between that and the uh, the age, that it's going to be hard to compete with the younger and middle-aged players. So maybe he really dialed down how much World Series he's playing and stuck to events where he perceived the competition's easier and the events don't last as long. Uh, the last time I can see that he cashed the main event, because remember he played every year, and uh, looks like he he had kind of a drought there. Because uh, I'm looking when he last cashed that, I'm going back pretty far. Yeah, it was in 2004, so it looks like he bricked it 14 consecutive times, which uh, he couldn't have been that happy about. He cashed in 174th place the year Raymer won in 04, got 15K, so he made only $5,000. Before that, uh, let's see when the last time he cashed before that. Uh, yeah, going back pretty far. Is it possibly only had one cash in that? No, he, he had it also in, 90, in 92. That's weird. I had no idea they did this, but uh, in 92, apparently, they were paying out less than the buy-in for certain spots. So in 92, he played the main event and cashed, but he got $7,000. He actually lost money on it despite cashing, which never happens anymore. That's interesting. I didn't even know they did that. In 87, he cashed in 18th in the main event for 12500 And then he also cashed in 84, the year Jack Keller won. And that was one of his better showings. He actually made the World Series main event final table, of course, much smaller field. So he only got 26400 for doing so with a $10,000 buy-in. And that's it. Uh, he didn't have the best record of the main event, I'll say that. He cashed uh, for the 26-4. Then he cashed for the 12500 so That what makes it like almost 39000 and then he cashed for uh, at seven thousand in ninety-two. That makes it uh, at forty-six thousand total. Let's see the next time he hit the main event. The next time was in 04 for fifteen thousand. That was the last time. So it looks like he cashed uh, sixty-one thousand dollars in the main event and bought in for four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So that's a pretty uh, harsh beatdown. Now, this is over a period of 45 years, so that makes it a lot easier to take, because it's really $10,000 a year. But still, that's uh, 
looks like his either he didn't run well or his style just wasn't that compatible with the main event, especially in the last. Uh, he bricked it between 05 and 18 for 13 straight years, 14 straight years. So it is possible that the style he played just didn't translate well to later on when everybody got more aggressive. Uh, I, I do see a lot of caches at smaller events, so it's possible his style just didn't work well for the main event. And I've seen that before. In fact, there's a much younger player than that. Not a young guy, but probably a guy around 50 that I knew from Commerce. And this guy was killing it at the Commerce tournaments. I saw him so many times winning, finishing second, finishing third, just really smacking it down at kind of the smaller Commerce tournaments. I, he wasn't killing it at the, like the main events, but he was... He was doing well at the smaller tr- commerce tournaments, and not the tiny ones. I mean, like thousand dollar buy in, things like that. Five hundred dollar buy in, two hundred dollar buy in. I saw him really doing well in those tournaments. So I went to go look up his World Series numbers, and it was pretty much nothing. And I knew he was there because I saw him around the World Series. So this was a guy who was uh, really destroying it. At I'm talking about not Howard Tahoe Andrew at this point. I'm talking about this other guy who was really killing it at the commerce local tournaments, but then couldn't take that act over to the World Series, whatever his style didn't translate. So that may have been the case here for the main event with Tahoe Andrew, that he just, uh, whatever he was doing wasn't working for the main event. Or he could have just run really bad. I actually haven't run well in the main event in as far as cashing, but the good thing was that the two years I did cashing, I've only cashed twice in the main event, which you may not realize, but the reason you may not realize it is the two times I cashed, I got pretty far. So one year I got to 88th place out of 7,300 something, and the other year, last year, or I guess it was 2019 now, not last year anymore, uh, I got to 128th place out of like 8,600. So those were both very deep runs where I cashed way more than the minimum. And yet the other times I bricked it. There were a number of times I came close and didn't cash, but you know, take away those two years, I've got a big slump too. Just difference is I got two deep runs into it. So I know there's a lot of variance in tournaments, and 14 tournaments doesn't mean a lot. But he did play 45, and he, he cashed in only like four or five of them. It, it did seem like he was better suited for the smaller tournaments. And also, again, his age is a big deal too. And a lot of you don't realize that. A lot of you don't realize how much you're going to lose in both endurance and sharpness when you are in your late 70s and early 80s, if you live that long. So that's a big factor, too. It's, you may think, oh, no, 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 I'll, I'll be really sharp. I'll be the same guy. No, you, you won't. <laughs> now, you may decline a little. You may decline a lot. You may be so, so out of it that you don't know what's going on. And you may be in the ground. It, it could be any of these things. But... There is a reason the seniors event is known to be a really soft field. I'm talking about the super seniors, actually. Now, the seniors event's 50 plus, so that's, there's a lot of good players in that because 50 is not that old. I, I will be 50 in slightly more than a year. But I, the super seniors is 65 plus. There's a reason that is considered a very soft event, and that is because people start to lose sharpness, especially when they get way past 65. 65, not as much, but even there, you, you, you're not quite the same. So that could have a lot to do with it, too. I, I try not to judge the results of older players, because number one, when they came up and learned, the game was a lot different. 
and then it just rapidly changed in the early 2000s and it's kind of hard to adjust to that and and second if if you're older there's less uh you, you just don't have the same abilities you did when you were much younger even doyle has pr- quit playing tournaments he just said he physically can't do it anymore that's not just like sitting in the same spot all day and concentrating all day it it can be trivial for you if you're not old but when, once you get old it can be tough that that adds to it you th- if you think the long day is bothering you now when you play world series tournaments wait till you're 80 then try it then tr- then try to go through that long day it's going to be real tough i don't even know how long i'll play like i don't know to what age i'll play i'm sure it will have to do with my both physical and mental state but yeah, if I have a hard time sitting there the whole day, I'm not going to torture myself and do it. Or if I just notice I don't have the sharpness anymore to compete with the young and middle-aged players, yeah, I might just play the seniors event or something and nothing else. I don't feel anything happening yet. I don't feel like I've lost any sharpness by this point, but I, I'm about 49 years old. That's, that shouldn't be happening yet. It's not happening yet, but it shouldn't be. Now, what's good is my parents are still very sharp. My, my parents are both over 75 and still very sharp. You, you would never guess from talking to them that they're over 75. So that's that's a good sign because a lot of the characteristics you have are genetic. So if, if both parents are doing very well cognitively after 75, then you've got a good shot at not deteriorating that much by that age. But still, you know, I'm not them. I just came from them. So who knows? My guess actually is that uh, my body is going to go before my mind. I, I that's just my guess of what's going to happen. I, I don't think I'm going to have a a senile time at the end of my life. I think it's going to be uh, my body my body dies while I'm still uh, pretty sharp, whenever that may be. May not though. I know how quickly things can change with your mind. Things start to go wrong. So anyway, uh, RIP Howard Tahoe Andrew, old school poker figure, two brace, two time bracelet winner. A lot of people liked him. No one had anything bad to say about him. Seemed like a nice guy from the descriptions I've heard. Never got the pleasure of meeting him. Or if I did, I didn't recognize who he was. Nevertheless, seems like a lot of people are sad that he passed away. Okay, let's move on and talk about the coronavirus. That's our last segment for tonight. No more uh, poker gambling stuff. Got the three coronavirus topics for you tonight. The first one is going to be about the CoronaVac vaccine. And you may say, I haven't heard of that one. Is it, what is that? The Pfizer? Is that the Moderna? Is that some, is that the AstraZeneca vaccine? No, it's none of them. The CoronaVac vaccine is actually the Chinese vaccine. <laughs> Now, when you buy merchandise on Amazon or wherever else that's made in China and it's very cheap, is it usually very good quality? Are you very happy when you get something that's made in China or does it tend to be crap? In my experience, it tends to be crap. They uh, they make it cheaply. They can sell it a hell of a lot cheaper than their American counterparts, but uh, you get what you pay for. It tends to be crap. Well, it looks like that has happened with the vaccine as well, except this is an embarrassment to China, who bragged about uh, 
how what how good of a job they did developing this vaccine and the speed that they did. In fact, they announced they were ready before the U.S. But now there's an embarrassment in that the vaccine is not working in practice nearly as well as they claimed it did from their uh, trials. And now other countries that are buying this vaccine from them are having second thoughts. So this this vaccine is called CoronaVac, and it's made by a company in Beijing called Sinovac, or Sinovac. Sinovac is actually owned by the state. It is not a private company. And uh, it has been distributed to a number of other countries, not just China. They claimed that it was 78% effective and that this is what they found in clinical trials. But they're not finding this in actual use and the question is, were they lying about it or were the clinical trials flawed or what's going on here? So in Brazil, where they bought this uh, CoronaVac, they found that so far in their late stage trials, only 50.38% of people had this vaccine work. Now, in case you're wondering what that means about the vaccine working, what they do in the trials is they study two groups of people. Uh, half the people get a placebo injected into them that does nothing for them, and half the people get the uh, vaccine injected. And then they're told to go out and live normal life, and they try to get uh, a group that's representative of just a cross-section of people and their habits. So some take more risks, some take less risks, and they monitor them all and see how many come down with the coronavirus, and none of them know whether they got the placebo or the actual vaccine. So they're hoping everybody just acts as if they have the vaccine, and then they get to see who got the coronavirus and who did not, and then they determine the rate by comparing those two. So if, uh, let's say, in a group of 100, if... uh, if when they come back that uh, 10 people had the coronavirus from the placebo group and of the 100 who got the real vaccine, only one of them had the coronavirus. And if they're convinced that both groups of 100 acted relatively the same as far as their risk profile, then they say, okay, in the placebo group, 10 got it. In the actual vaccine group, only one got it. So that means it's 90% effective because we could assume that 10 would have gotten it in this second group, but nine dodged it. So that means 90% of people were protected by the vaccine and one was not. So that would that's where it would be 90% effective. Here it's only 50% effective. So here in the same example, five people in the group that actually got the vaccine would have come down with COVID, where the group that got nothing would have had 10 people. So that's that's not very good. It's pretty much you get that vaccine. It's like a 50-50 shot whether it's going to protect you. So Brazil is not happy about this. And it's an embarrassment for uh, China and also that it's thought that uh, no one's going to want to buy their vaccine anymore if this is the case. The Brazilian results there are showing that not only were, were the CoronaVac numbers uh much lower than expected, but when you compare them to the 
Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which claim to be 95% effective, that's really, really much lower. That's, that's a much worse efficacy rate for the coronavirus vaccine out of China. And the U.S. one is just stomping, both U.S. ones are just stomping on it, provided that in practice that you really do get efficacy rates around 95%. But if you don't, if we get 85%, that's still crushing it. So it's an embarrassment for China that the U.S. outperformed them so much. Now, Russia claims they're right behind the U.S. They claim that their vaccine, which they call Sputnik V, which is funny, named after the uh, first uh, craft they sent into space in 1957 called Sputnik. But uh, Sputnik V, the vaccine, they claim has an efficacy rate of 91%. And uh, the one developed in the U.K. by Oxford and AstraZeneca has uh, 70% effectiveness. So this is just... Not doing a good job. <laughs> so anyway, they, they are very uh, concerned there in China that uh, CoronaVac has been a fail. And uh, they have a second vaccine called Sinopharm. And Sinopharm has, uh, I don't think that has been sent out into the uh, public yet to be tested uh, in other countries. But they're claiming that one has a 79% efficacy rate, but who knows, that might be a lie too. Uh, Sinovac actually is supposed to go to six foreign governments, uh, Brazil, Turkey, uh, Hong Kong, and uh, Thailand, uh, Philippines, and there's a, a sixth one, I think Indonesia is the last one. However, these countries are all considering canceling it because of the fail in Brazil. They, they don't want a 50% effective vaccine. It'll be interesting to see if the U.S. vaccines really do protect 95% of the people, at least those who use it properly. I know there are some who get the shot and then just run right out and say, okay, I'm vaccinated now. They, they don't understand, even though they've been warned, that they are not that well protected until they get the second shot and wait like another five days. But those that actually follow instructions and socially distance until the second shot has had the time to work and they are 95% likely to be vac- to be uh, protected, it be interested to, interesting to see how many people actually come down with the virus anyway. There's also some optimism for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines that it's been found that not only is it holding down the number of symptomatic COVID cases by this very wide margin, but that the 5% that do get COVID don't seem to get it severely. So there's a belief that maybe the vaccine is going to hold back severe coronavirus disease no matter what. And that would really be a game changer. If you knew that the worst that would happen to you would be getting sick from it, but it's not going to be terrible. So if you could avoid major symptoms by just by taking the vaccine, and that's about 100% effective for that, and 95% effective for feeling any symptoms, that is a miracle vaccine and a huge triumph for the U.S., but we'll have to see if it actually works that way in practice. Now, interestingly, some countries it's doing better. Uh, Turkey actually reported so far 91% is that uh, has been uh, saved by this vaccine. They claim that efficacy rate over there, but they just started using it. So I don't, I think that's probably not that accurate. Indonesia said that uh, they're getting 
in Brazil, there is one silver lining in that uh, they found that even though only, it was only uh, 50% effective in preventing COVID symptoms at all, that when you take out the very mild cases, I don't know how that's defined, but probably just ones where you feel a little bit sick or you feel a little bit fatigued, you have a little bit of fever, but where it's nearly not a big deal, where it's not like a – I'm assuming when they say mild, they mean like where it's it's not a memorable illness other than knowing you had COVID. It's not a memorable illness or the after effects, that if you take out the mild cases, that it has protected 78% of the people. So I, I don't know. It's obviously not as good as they're saying, and it's, it is an embarrassment for China, especially since they created this damn thing. <laughs> Talking about the virus, not the vaccine. But uh, it would look really bad for them if a number of countries cancel out and don't bother getting it. But I, I think the reason the U.S.'s are so much better is because they're using this mRNA method. I think that's the most effective method to fight this. I think these other vaccines are more old school, and they are similar to the flu vaccine because the flu vaccine does get a, an efficacy rate of something like between 40 and 60%, it's assumed. The flu is not a very good vaccine, whereas the, this COVID vaccine is supposedly really, really good, both the Moderna and the Pfizer. Okay, well, speaking of China, something's finally happening and I, I don't know why this didn't occur a year ago. Well, I kind of do. But it's finally happening, and it's a little bit or a lot too late for them to be doing this. But the WHO claims that they are in Wuhan, China, to look up the origin of the coronavirus, and that maybe that whole bat story isn't true. Maybe like we've suspected for a long time, it really was created in a lab. Yes. I've been saying that for a long time. I did not believe that the coronavirus was created in uh, accidentally by eating bats. The reason I didn't believe this was twofold. Number one, Wuhan did have a chemical weapons, a biological weapons lab, whatever, in, in right there in Wuhan. It just didn't make any sense that they, they would have that. And it would just so happen that the virus sprung up from something other than that lab. It's too much of a coincidence. The second thing is that this was too perfect, this virus. It was too perfect. There, there was something very unusual about it that some people don't recognize. Most deadly viruses have one of two characteristics. Either they are very deadly, but are not very transmissible. They just don't spread around that much. Or they're very transmissible, but not very deadly. So Ebola is one that's very deadly, but not very transmittable. And that's because people with Ebola get sick very fast, and they get knocked out so badly that they can't walk around to spread it. So that really reduces the opportunity of people who catch Ebola to spread it to others. Now, like 50% of them die, which is far worse than COVID. Can you imagine if 50% of people were dying who got COVID? We'd be wiped out here. But 50% do die from Ebola. But as I said, it's hard to catch because the people who are carrying it can't walk around anymore. They're, they're, they're sapped of their energy and they're in bed and they lie there and die very fast. So for that reason, it's, it's hard to have that many Ebola outbreaks because of the lack of ability to spread. 
The swine flu, which we dealt with in 09, is the opposite. That one spreads well, but is not that deadly. It is estimated that about 60 million people in the U.S. in 2009, about 20% of the population, came down with the swine flu. It's very possible I had it, very possible you had it. However, for most, it was not memorable. In fact, for most, they did not even feel it. A large percentage of people were asymptomatic, and a large percentage of people got kind of mild illness, but didn't do much more than that. There were not uh, any stories I knew of that left people with permanent damage, like lung damage. And there were not that many people who died from it. So it could have been a crisis, but it was not. It ended up kind of a non-story, and it it burnt itself out and died. So there's no more swine flu. Even though 20% of the population got it, it wasn't that deadly. So that was an example of a virus that spread easily and spread a lot, but was not deadly, and to a lot of people it just wasn't harmful at all. That's why it seemed to be more hype than anything else. I understand why people are alarmed by it. I'm just saying that it didn't end up causing a lot of harm. So I always thought to myself, what if the swine flu could combine with something like Ebola and somehow spread? Imagine how much damage it could do. The reason the coronavirus can do so much damage is because the majority of the spreading occurs before you know you have symptoms. So you're walking around normal society infecting people and you think you're healthy, in reality you've caught coronavirus and don't know it yet and it'll take at least two days and as many as seven and often as many as four or five before you feel symptoms. And in all that time you were spreading it around and then people who caught it from you will spread it around in the same fashion. So the fact that those first two days you don't even know you have it allows you to spread it around a lot more. So that is something that really makes it a perfect virus to both spread and kill because it's something that has kind of a delay built in where you get it, no symptoms, you keep spreading it because you don't know to watch out, and then once you have uh, spread it some or enough time has passed, then it shows itself symptom-wise and you realize you have COVID. So this really is too perfect and... I think it was accidentally released. I don't think that China released this upon us, but I do think it was developed there and accidentally got released somehow and then ran wild. So the WHO, which has been a puppet of China for a long time, has finally decided that they are going to try to find clues to the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, no public information is being given about that visit. And the WHO won't say exactly what they're going to do or where they're going to go to investigate this. They claim it's likely to be a years-long effort. Yeah, good luck. The, China, the Chinese are not going to let the WHO see anything that they don't want the WHO seeing. They can't count on the WHO. Uh, like they, they can, they can count on the, we, we can't count on the WHO. Is what I'm saying they, they can count on them is the problem. And the WHO has controlled China for a long time. You just can't believe a lot of what they say. And and truthfully, a lot of the nonsense they put out, people always justify their warped perception of COVID by pointing to, oh, look, the WHO said this. What, you're trying to say you know more about COVID than them? And I say, well, yes, actually, yes. They, they're not handling this well, and they have been puppets of China for a long time. So I, I don't have a lot of faith that this investigation is going to reveal anything. You've probably seen the Chinese numbers that seem very low as far as deaths there, and you say, wow, they've handled it well. They, they really know how to do this. No, they're lying. There's a lot of indications that China has lied about their numbers. 
and that once they got to about 80,000 deaths, they kind of just slowed the reporting of deaths and cases to such a degree that it looks like it's almost done there. But from people on the ground who have been, managed to get tweets out, they have said the opposite story. They have said that basically uh, China still has a big-time problem, and they're just not being honest about it. They claim to have only gotten like a thousand cases or something in the last year. And uh, deaths are hardly occurring. What a great place to be. What a great place to be, huh? In case you're wondering about the U.S., yesterday in the U.S., there were uh, 174,000 new cases and 1,846 deaths. There are now more than 400,000 deaths in the U.S. of the coronavirus, 407,202. I don't know what the eventual number is going to be. That's a lot of people dead. The U.S. does lead the world in number of deaths, but not death per thousand or per million population, because that's the most important number, death per million population, due to the fact that uh, the U.S. is a big population. If you look at countries that aren't tiny, there are several ahead of the USA. The U.K., for example, is worse than the U.S. in deaths per million. They have 1311. U.S. has 1226. Belgium is the worst with uh, 1,756 deaths per million. Slovenia, 1530. Italy, 1360. And Bosnia-Herzegovina, 1349. The U.S. not doing well, but it's uh, th- there's a myth that Europe is doing better than the U.S. and there's parts of Europe that are not. Okay, finally... There's been a lot of mistakes with the vaccine distribution. And you can rest this at the feet of the state and local governments and a little bit of the federal government. A few things are going on here. Uh, first of all, there is, uh, first Biden came out with a stupid plan saying that he's only, he's going to release all the vaccines. He's not going to hold back the second batch because Trump's plan was to distribute only half the vaccines knowing that everybody needs a second dose. And this way, if you're holding back half, there's always enough for a second dose. I agree with that. I think that's the right thing to do. Well, Biden said, nope, we want to vaccinate as many people as possible. We're going to take all the doses and use those for first doses. And people say, okay, well, what about my second dose? Oh, don't worry. We'll speed everything up. We'll we'll make it faster. I'll use the Defense Production Act. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that, Biden. But it turns out that Trump was no angel here either because when they went to go look for the vaccines that Trump had in storage, that is, that half were held back for later, it turned out that the number of vaccines left was 0.0. So that's a big problem. No one knows what happened there, but they're gone. It's like they thought they had them, but I I guess they gave them away. So now there there is no storage of second vaccines to hand out. I don't know how they're going to have it. I don't know what they're going to do, but they've got to get to work. This is the time to boot out the essential workers, by the way, that are getting this vaccine, at least the young ones. The 30-year-old essential worker just shouldn't be getting it ahead of the old people, especially since there's such a big shortage because you're going to need a second dose and not too long for a lot of the people who are getting vaccinated now. There's not even uh, It's not even known what will happen if you wait too long between the first and second dose. So you really want to get this as stated, not some experimental way that they're hoping works. But as I was saying, aside from that 
issue federally, the state and local governments have had big problems with the vaccine in several ways. A lot of it is related to bureaucracy, to where they have strict laws as to what order they can be distributed, which means they absolutely cannot give the vaccine to people in certain demographics, even if people in the previous group didn't show up. And that has been really frustrating. And because of that, there's there's also a big backlog in people trying to get appointments. And they they really screwed it up from the standpoint of uh, distribution in New York. Uh, One of the most undeserving Emmys of all time was the one that Andrew Cuomo got for leadership and his TV addresses during COVID. He totally didn't deserve that. All Andrew Cuomo did, the the governor of New York, all he did during COVID was get on TV and act really angry and serious and and give you the the fake, uh, the the pseudo-straightforward New Yorker talk. Where he sounds like he's he's on top of it, sounds like he's taking no BS, sounds like he's no nonsense, sounds like he's sharp and knows what's going on, and and, and uh, if you dare question him, he's going to call you out because yeah, he's Andrew Cuomo, he knows what he's doing. That's the image he projects, but that's not what's really going on there. There's a lot of incompetence, and uh, while there's incompetence everywhere, and there's a lot of different states and localities struggling, listen to what's going on in New York. There's this complicated hierarchy regarding who can get the vaccine and who can't. And the problem is Cuomo passed a law that if uh, hospitals give people the vaccine who aren't on the list of who can uh, have it at this point, then what happens is they get fined like a million dollars, two million dollars. So no place wants to take that chance. So what happens when they don't have enough people to, when they yeah they don't have enough people to give the vaccines to bees remember they got to store the vaccines super cold then unpack them and then once they're thawed they don't have that long to give out and so guess what happens if someone comes in and says they have zero 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 so that's that's a disaster and uh, and what ends up happening is that uh, people are having a very hard time getting the vaccine especially old people who really need it now, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, is having a big battle with Andrew Cuomo because uh, de Blasio is simply noticing that the vulnerable people just can't get it. They just absolutely can't get it. And uh, de Blasio complained publicly in a tweet. He wrote, we are not allowed by state law to give a single shot to a single New Yorker over 75. And then he went on talk shows and was asking why even his own father couldn't get vaccinated and that Cuomo was messing this up. So now Cuomo doesn't get along with him. Cuomo and de Blasio, despite both being, de- being Democrats, hate each other, and they both think that the other is incompetent. The, the answer is they're actually both right. But uh, uh, Cuomo then, uh, as a result of that shaming, went ahead and said that elderly people and city workers now also could get the vaccine. However, to schedule appointments was not trivial. Apparently, they have a fail site. They actually have a fail site to set up the appointments. And the problem is the site is buggy. It's complicated. It's extremely difficult for people who are not good with computers. Now, who do you think isn't good with computers? If you, if you had to point to a subsection of the population, of the U.S. population, who isn't very good with computers, uh, what segment would you say that is? Might it be old people? Could that be? Could it be old people that are kind of 
not that great with computers because they didn't grow up with them? I would say so, wouldn't you? So when old people need it the most, do you think it's a good idea to have these sign up only through a website that is full of bugs and is difficult to use and is user-unfriendly and puts you through all these long, complicated forms? you think that's a good thing for old people, some of whom don't have a computer, some can barely use them, some have a very hard time navigating it, and some won't know what to do when they get error messages popping up? So, so here's a message that uh, someone took a screenshot of. Oops, sorry, your request could not be carried out because of an error. Please log out and sign in again. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at this, though, because you know, old people in New York who really need the vaccine are not getting it because of this. Uh, someone, actually it wasn't that, someone, the uh, comptroller of New York City, Scott Stringer, said the NYC Healthy site has a multi-step verification process just to set up an account. What? This sounds like they're setting up an online poker account, a multi-step verification process, and then a six-step process to set up an appointment. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Along the way, there are as many as 51 questions in addition to having to upload images of your insurance card. <laughs> Jeez, what are they doing? What are they doing? So you have to go through a big verification process. Then you have to go through this uh, 51-question thing here to set up an appointment, and you have to upload your insurance card. There's there's a, a lot of complaints that this is what Scott Stringer said was complex, burdensome, and buggy. He said it creates an obstacle for too many people, particularly seniors trying to sign up. This is a major problem. I agree. Assemblyman Ron Kim in New York who's the chairman of the aging committee, said, first, it should be a two-step verification process to vaccinate older adults, but fixing hospital vaccination screening process is not the issue. Why did the governor punt this to underfunded hospitals in the first place? Why didn't the governor just trust local protocols? So people are going off on uh, Cuomo that he was incompetent here. Uh, Kim also said that he had informally surveyed some doctors and asked them why they thought the governor decided to trust hospitals to do, vac- do the vaccinations. He said... Uh, they overwhelmingly told him it's to make privately ho- private hospitals look good. So there's a belief that hospitals, some of which may have donated to his campaigns, uh, said, hey, let us do it. This is going to make us look good. Let us manage it. And Cuomo let them do it, and they're screwing it up. It's been a disaster there. My mom actually knows someone in New York, someone her age, that says she absolutely just can't get an appointment and that the whole thing's a gigantic fail and everybody's very frustrated. Now, this is not the only place that's screwing it up. Uh, Los Angeles County is not even ready for seniors yet. They claim they're still vaccinating the healthcare workers. They're, they'll, they'll let you know when it's time for the 65-plus people. They lowered it from 75-plus because of outrage. But they, they'll let you know when the 65-plus people have their term, but not yet. Still not yet mid-January. We're here on January 18th. Still not yet for the seniors in L.A. County. And not only that, they're going to be competing with essential workers, even ones as young as 18. Isn't that nice? They're going to be in line with kids, almost kids, who are really not vulnerable at all to the disease. And they're going to be competing with seniors who have been waiting, waiting, waiting. So LA County screwing this up badly. There's just been uh, a lot of logistical failures, but none worse than New York. New York is really screwing the pooch hard on this one. And people are furious. 
People are really angry at Cuomo over this. So I don't know when they'll get it right. I mean, it's going to slowly happen, but the whole thing has been a lot slower than it's supposed to be. And uh, who knows when I'll get it. It seems like it's going to be ages. They're just they're slower to get the vaccines out. There's vaccines that are going bad because of these bureaucratic uh, restrictions on who can get it and who can't. At least when it gets to my turn, that won't go on anymore because I'll be in like a general group. But still, uh, is a, this is a gigantic mess. And, and to set up a fail site for this is ridiculous. And I saw the same thing in L.A., by the way, with COVID testing. Uh, Ken Scaler couldn't navigate himself into a COVID test. He couldn't figure out how to do it. So he had to have me do it. Now, I was able to, but the site sucked. And I posted the link to the site on Poker Fraud Alert's forum, and uh, some other people tried it just, just to see what it's like. They didn't set up a real appointment, but they went through the, the motions before actually setting it up. And they said, yeah, you're right. The site is terrible. <laughs> this is, we see exactly what you're talking about. This is not good. This is going to be very difficult for someone to use who's not computer savvy. So same thing. Like, like they, they set up these terrible, buggy sites that, that are very user-unfriendly and difficult, even for experienced users. So can you imagine your grandma trying to use this thing? There's no way. And even if you are computer savvy, it has bugs, it has errors, it tells you to log out and log back in because of unknown errors. What a tremendous fail. What a tremendous fail. And then all Cuomo was doing, he was so obsessed with people not buying their way into an early vaccine that he dropped the ball with everything else. This is such a case of the cure being much worse than the disease. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the cure to coronavirus or the disease of the coronavirus. I'm talking the disease in Cuomo's mind was rich assholes buying their way in, bribing their way into an early vaccine. So his cure was to set up these terribly high fines for any provider that hands out the vaccine to someone who doesn't qualify by, by age or whatever category. So what's happened is that uh, whenever they have that leftover vaccines, there's such a strict, narrow group of people that it can be given to that if they can't find enough in that group, it's illegal to give it to anybody else. They actually have to let vaccines go bad. Can you believe that? They actually have to let vaccines sit there and rot and go bad and end up in the trash because Cuomo is going to find them like a million bucks or a million point five if they dare vaccinate anybody else who's not in that particular priority group. What a mess. But but getting on, on TV and putting on the angry Italian act that he's straightforward, he's to the point, he's in your face, he's not going to take BS, and he's going to give you straight talk. Every, every, every time he's talking, you, you get that same tone from him. It's like this angry Italian New Yorker who's going to tell you how it is. He's going to tell you how it is in a very matter-of-fact tone so you know he's serious and you know he's straightforward and he doesn't uh, take BS and he doesn't make up BS. He just he just tells you how it is. But it's all an act. That's not what's happening. He, that's the demeanor he puts on, but that's not what he's doing. He's actually incompetent. And so is de Blasio, by the way. But you know, if you were to question Cuomo on TV about it, and I, I didn't watch the latest uh, things he's been saying, but he'll say something like, no, what, what we're doing here is we're distributing the vaccine to those that are supposed to get it. Because there's people who want to cut in line, and these people, they, they are trying to bribe their way in, the rich people, the people who aren't supposed to get it, and they're trying to buy their way in. We're not going to let it happen. 
I'm not going to let this happen in New York. They're not going to buy the way in to the vaccine. We're going to make sure that everybody who gets the vaccine is supposed to get it. They're in the group. They're supposed to get it. And the people who are not supposed to be getting that vaccine and are trying to buy the way in, they're not going to do it here in New York. So that sounds great, right? But then if they're not flexible, then if you don't have enough people in that group showing up on a particular day to get it, then it goes to waste, goes in the trash. And for a while, uh, seniors, it was going so slowly that seniors could not even get the vaccine until de Blasio pressured them. De Blasio starts going on the talk show circuit saying how how much Cuomo sucks. And then Cuomo is going to come back on TV and say, all right, I, I told you I'm going to take care of the seniors. I'm going to take care of them. I, I, am, I am now allowing seniors who are 75 and up to go get the vaccine. So I, I don't see what the problem is. I told you when it's their turn, they're going to get it. It's their turn now. They will go get it. They will get vaccinated. They will be safe. This is what I said the whole time. And it's always been known that healthcare workers are going to get it first. The, the healthcare workers are going to get it. Then it's going to be time for the elderly and, and the essential workers who are putting themselves in harm's way. And it, there, are, there are factors beyond our control, which occurs sometimes, but we are doing it fairly and equitably, and we're not letting anyone abuse the system. And there's some who are questioning, why are we not letting others abuse the system? It's because we're not letting anyone buy their way to the vaccine. So like, you, you hear that and you go, wow, what a responsible guy. But then you look at the reality and, and it's a disaster. Um, I don't have much more to say. We're done here. I, I trade Ruski is going to find out the bad news when he tries to come on at 3 a.m. and we're gone. I thought that might happen. I thought it might happen. I just didn't have quite the material this week to go uh, six hours. Sometimes that's the way it goes. <laughs> We didn't go five hours, did we? Well, crap. How is it such a short show? Okay, let me, let me stop for a second then. I'm, I'm going to give you a little uh, personal discussion here since it's been a shorter show than expected. I have a colonoscopy coming up this week, so I don't know if there's going to be radio next week. I don't know how I'm going to feel. It definitely won't be on Friday. It probably won't be on Saturday. Uh, maybe by Sunday I will feel up to it. I guess it's appropriate that we're on Sunday this week, which will give me more time to get to uh, feel to where I'm okay. I've heard after these you can be uh, very tired. And, uh, of course, I also have to get uh, my uh, digestive system back to normal. Uh, some of you – I don't know how long this is supposed to last afterwards, but – Something that is universal for colonoscopies is you actually have to forcibly give yourself diarrhea by taking uh, lots of laxatives before the procedure. So it cleans your colon out and they can uh, see everything clearly. So uh, the the question I never asked (laughs) that I'm kind of curious about now is how long does it take to then eat eat and not have diarrhea anymore once the procedure is over? I don't know how fast you get better from that. And uh, obviously I can't have it to where uh, I have to keep running to the bathroom every uh, half hour. Otherwise, I won't be able to do radio then. So we'll see. We will see how I feel after that. And uh, maybe we'll have radio next week. Maybe we won't. If I can't do it by Sunday night, there just won't be radio. 
and will just return on Friday or Saturday of the following week. But I'll post announcements about this on Twitter, on twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. And, uh, you know, I hope it goes well. I've never had one before. And hopefully the procedure itself goes well. Hopefully I handle the whole thing well and it's not, uh, doesn't cause me a lot of anxiety while I'm there. And hopefully the sedation goes well when they put me out for it and I don't have any kind of issues with that. And, uh, hopefully I wake up and they just say there was nothing there. No, no polyps. Everything's good. But, uh, it's also possible to find polyps there and they gotta biopsy them and make sure that they're not cancerous. But it's the first one and I'm getting near 50. So I'm definitely in that danger zone where it is possible I could get, uh, bad news or semi bad news. And I'm just hoping that's not what happens. I know a number of you have had colonoscopies and have given me your take on it and, your experience, and I appreciate that. If you want to text me a little bit more about that, about your experience with the colonoscopy, I'm I'm happy to hear it. I, I will be using the propofol that was the same uh, anesthetic that killed Michael Jackson. Of course, he was abusing it. He was using it to go to sleep every night and uh, needed like more and more every day to fall asleep. So uh, that that's not a typical uh, propofol death. And from what I've seen, it's it's very rare, and that when it does happen, you tend to have like major other issues too. So uh, it it is a safe form of general anesthesia, but it is still a general anesthesia. And if you've used that, I'd like to hear from you about that and what your experience was with the propofol, because uh, I want to be asleep through the whole thing. I I don't want to feel it. I don't want to see it. I just I just want to fall asleep and wake up and have them say. Okay, you're done. And I'll say, okay, great. And then I'll be done with this for some years. Uh, this will be a thing I have to do the rest of my life, but if I don't have any polyps, I think I'm going to have at least five years so I have to go again, which will be nice. But the first time is going to be the hardest because uh, it's it's unfamiliar to me. Like Once I'm used to it, then it'll be easier. But here it's like the big unknown in front of me. I know it's not a major procedure, but I have been... I've only been put out once in my life. And that was for oral surgery about 19 years ago. This is the only second time I'm getting that done. And that's something I do not like. It's a thought I do not like. But something that must be done. And I am going forward with it this week. That's something I'm looking forward to. I'll tell you that, though. The day before, I also can't eat anything. I have to have what they call a clear liquid diet, which means I can have things like beef broth or uh, popsicles or jello, but I can't eat any kind of anything solid. I can't have any solids at all, and and everything I eat has to be. Uh, it can't be like a dark liquid. Definitely can't be red. Can't have any consistency to it. So, uh, it's not something that's going to be fun. I guess starting from uh, the day before, between the prep and actually doing it, I'll be happy when all that's over. I can go back to normal life or the semblance of normal life. 
But after that, we'll return to normal Poker Fraud Alert radio shows, as we always do. Should be every week. I thank our free roll of donors this week. Eric Benzamokin offered to donate this week, but I said, no, we got it. We got some money this week. But I thank him for that offer. Alrighty. You can text me 775-372-8355 if you have anything to say. I enjoy hearing from everybody. I really do. Well, that is all. Thank you for joining us on a shorter-than-usual show this week. Good night, everybody. And... Wait, hold on, hold on. River phone call. River phone call. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, everybody. It's split. Hey, this is really split, this? It's really split. I've, I've, yep. never spoke, I've never spoken to you before in all the years you've been on the forum. You, you caught me literally like seconds before I was about to shut it down. Yeah, I just wanted to call and talk a little bit about what's going on on the forum. I mean, okay, you can. I don't usually bring forum drama into the show, but uh, if you want to say something, you can. Well, you know, I kind of feel really bad about Sonatine. I mean, it's just, I don't know. You know, he's been such a great poster through the years. We were really good friends before um, the election and all the politics, and that's really what seems to have, like, totally split apart the forum, the country, everything. I don't know, you know, what's going to bring it all back together again. And I really don't understand, um, I don't know, like, why they try to make an alternate site and why they try to overdo you, which failed and then brought more fervor and then everything with me and um, Kilgore, supposedly, which was long over. I just don't get it all. It's crazy. Well, yeah, it's yeah, you know, it's a lot of the stuff I don't want to discuss out here now. But uh, Sonatine's ban is only uh, for a few days, and uh, it expires later today, the eighteenth. So, uh, you know, provided that he wants to return uh, when that's over, then then he can return, and uh, and then you know, as far as everything else, just uh, what you said with the election is true. A lot of people got to really split apart, not just on the forum, but uh, all over on Facebook, everywhere. A lot of people, because of different political opinions, got to dislike each other. And see, I didn't do this. I I didn't come to dislike anybody for their politics, but uh, some came to dislike me. Some came to resent me or not like me. And I'm not really talking about people involved in, the, in, in what you're talking about. I'm just talking about in general, that there's certain people who, because my politics were different than theirs, they, they had a hard time accepting it, and then, then they start making judgments about you. And, and, and what would be better is if everybody could just say, uh, we just have different takes on this. We have different agreement. We have different uh, opinions. We have different beliefs of the right and wrong way to do things and to handle things. And that doesn't make you a bad person if you think differently about it than somebody else. Because a lot of times, everybody kind of wants to get to the same place. They just have different ideas on how to do it. And if if you start getting caught up in, well, my side is the one that's moral, and the other side is immoral, and if you're part of that side, then you're immoral, then 
that there's going to be a lot of disagreements, a lot of friendships destroyed, even some families that will have uh, people not talking to each other again. And it's very sad. And I, I, I've made sure not to do this personally to where I can't control if people want to talk to me, but I, I've, I have not stopped talking to anybody, nor have I held it against anybody if they hold different political views than I do. So uh, that's, and that's really the way I wish everybody were to handle this left and right. I agree, but you know, we can only hope things will get better. Um, but I just wanted to say, Hey, and hi to everybody. And one day I will meet you um, when this all gets over with. And, and Ralph, I just want to say I cannot emphasize enough that if you fix your diet and, and, and exercise, your life will change 100%. So I wanted to keep drilling that in because it will. I know you're, I know that, you're very big you know, on that. But <laughs> that's, yeah, that's... I'm actually leaving for the gym now. So, um Wow. It, it just, it really is. It, I mean, I'm going to keep tarping, and when you meet me and see me, I hope that it'll even drive home more how important it is. Well, but it, that's something. I, I don't see how it you. can. I, you but obviously I, are I, the only one I trust on the forum to meet. Okay, but how so, can it, how can it drill it in? If, I, if I've never seen you, I've never seen you before, so how can it drill anything in? Because I wouldn't have anything to compare it to before you started exercising. Oh, I've got pictures. Okay, I've got pictures. So, when yeah. did when did you start so, with the with the exercise regimen? Well, it was you know um, you know close to three years ago when I decided to quit drinking and look at my life and what was going on and I don't know a little light bulb goes off that you know you're not living right and you need to change and then when I changed I mean great things started happening to your body to your mind to your life. And, and it just all clicks into place. So, um, I don't know, we'll talk more when I get to see you, hopefully in another year when all this passes over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe a but, while. I, um, I, I don't know when. Uh, I, I don't know if I will be at the 2021 World Series. And uh, there's a good chance of the 22 World Series, but I don't know about the 21. And uh, But, yes, I, I would. Well, if you're ever out east on a, um, on a vacation, you know, as much as everyone hates Cleveland, there's a lot of good things about it, and I could guide you guys around. Um, there's a lot of things to see here. <laughs> I've, I've actually never, I've it. never been to the state of Ohio ever. That's one state I have just not wow. ever been in, in, been to at all. I've been, I've been well, to Michigan. I know. We're not super popular, so whatever. Yeah, but I've been, I've been to right. Michigan. I've been to Anyways, Pennsylvania. I but... want to shout out to everybody at PFA. I don't care if you love me, hate me, big dick. Um, you know, <laughs> he's got to settle down a little bit. So does Walt. But I still love you guys, and we'll get through this. Yeah, you know, Big Dick actually isn't a bad guy. He, I know on the forum he, he talks a lot of shit, but then like, actually behind all that, he's actually decent. And uh, I think everybody is, really. Yeah, well, it's some a, some more than others. Know, when but you're like, behind a computer, it's easy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there, there, are, there have been some people who have been very hostile on the forum for years, and then they see me at the World Series, and then they come up and they act like they're my best friend, and they go, what? Like, they, but it, like it's hard for me sometimes to put that aside and go, if someone's been saying all these awful things about me for so long, it's hard to just, like, say hello to them and, and act like everything's great. And I, I don't mean, like, people who've ever criticized me once. I'm talking about people who are, like, relentlessly just bashing me that they want to meet up at the World Series, but... 
that doesn't apply to most people. Yeah, you know, most people I'm happy to meet, both uh, radio listeners. Because I'll also have people who come up to me during the World Series who listen to the show that I I've never talked to before, and they say, "Hey, I'm listening to your show." Or sometimes the weirdest thing is like someone's like at like a table over during an event, and they go from across the table goes, "Hey, Todd," and I turn around to some strangers. Guess who I'm listening to right now? <laughs> I go, uh, "Me." Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's good, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, and Sonatine, please, please, please stop this vendetta. Stop trying to overthrow PFA and, and go back to the person you used to be. Please, well, I, I, please, I think please. this, I, I, I think that's, this is all going to get better. I, I hope it does. I, I think everybody should wait and see who's been following the forum drama over the next week. I, I think there will be uh, some significant improvement coming down uh, this week from, from what I'm seeing. So that's, that's my prediction here. Uh, I guess we will see. I think, I think people will be interested to finally hear you though. I don't think anybody's heard you before except for like my con well, a million I years to ago. Prove I wasn't a dupe. I've never done dupes. Nobody else is me. I'm nobody else. And you know, well, I know Mycon saw a picture truth. of you, like, like you got on video or something for him, like, many, many years ago, like in 05 or 06 or something like that. Right, right. So I knew you were real because he told That's me you were when real. That's when I was, I, that was crazy. I was super crazy back then. But, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk about that video. <laughs> no. no I, I, I wasn't but, there to see um, it, though. I was, uh, live and I, learn. I, I happened to be, just not be there when when he did this, and I said, "Ah, I missed out on seeing the video split this." But uh, he didn't be say. Thankful it. you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm curious to see everything, but that's okay. You know, I, I'll meet the real you when the, when the time comes. And I always tell people that they can trust me. I'm not going to give away who they are, or what their real name is. There's a lot of people who's like I have their real names on the forum that they gave to me in some way, sometimes just to send the money for the free roll that they won, whatever it is. And, and I don't give it out. I, I never would give it out. I keep everybody's information very private here. I take that seriously. And and really the only way I would give it out is either one, if somebody scammed, two, if somebody was involved in some crime, that, or, or three, if uh, if they were like personally harassing me. And I mean like really harassing me like in, in real life or, or, or something Bad enough to warrant that, not just insulting me on the forum. If if so, if someone pisses me off enough on the forum, usually the the way I'm just going to handle is just ban them. I'm not going to go after them in any way unless they've done something very bad to me first. Then uh, that's the only way I would uh, respond. Like I, you can trust me if if you were to meet me. I think you can tell that. Yeah, now. I do have I do have faith. You keep my information private. Yeah, um, I I really do. You have shown to be very trustworthy uh, through the years. Well, thank you. Okay, well, that that is good. I'm glad to hear from you finally. It's been uh, all these years you've been on the forum, and I, I've never even heard your voice, never seen a picture of you. Don't know. I don't really know anything about you. So, uh, other than I what you said, I called in one other time. I think I spoke with a low limit lurker. Uh, oh, that, that, no, that, that was that must have been that other show that they had. That uh, one of those other sites. That wasn't mine. I've never spoken to you. Okay. <laughs> I would remember All right, that. and and to limited left. Come on, quit quit that drinking, killing you. Trust yeah, I, me, I, I know. I don't think less is. Come on, left, quit drinking, honey. I don't. We I don't think you. he will. I know it's uh, less. People say, why don't I just ban him permanently? And I go, you know, let, he's just kind of a fixture in the community. It's it's hard. I, I've I've banned. No, him for, we love love. I've banned him for periods of time when he's gotten out of hand, but I I keep letting him back because. Uh, 
Uh, I understand that the alcohol talking sometimes when he goes off and he's been around in this community for so long, I don't want to uh, permanently kick him. So he's actually stayed no. around for a while this time, though. He hasn't messed up in a while. But yeah. I agree I agree. he needs all to stop right. drinking. All right, well, i got to get going, and um, just I hope we can all come back together at, on some level. That yeah, I great. hope that too. Okay, well, well, thank you for calling. Okay, take care. Okay, all good right, night. Bye-bye. Wow, five, it was five seconds before, actually five seconds, actually five seconds before I was going to turn it off. Listen to this. That was it. That was it. Now, I don't know how to end the show now, because that was supposed to be the end, but <laughs> I can't play five seconds right here. Maybe I'll go to this one. Okay, so we got a call for Split This at the end from the forum. She, she, if you don't read the forum, you don't know what she's talking about. But there, there was some drama on the forum. And uh, I believe this is all over now. Which is good. I don't enjoy it. But uh, Split This is, you know, she's been a controversial figure on the forum. And uh, she has express some uh, right-wing political opinions that have gotten people angry. But you know what she's saying is true. They that Hopefully, people who used to like each other, or at least somewhat like each other before all the election stuff happened both four years ago and in 2020, that maybe they can just get over it and say, okay, you know what? We're going to uh, forget all about all that stuff and Go back to liking each other. That's a good plan. Always drama on a free speech forum. We have a free speech forum. It's just, it's a magnet to issues coming up every so often. It's, it's pretty much impossible not to have that happen. But that is just what comes to the territory. You know, if I ran a tightly moderated board, it'd be a lot more boring. There'd be a lot less drama. But I don't, and that's not what I want to run, so... We get what we get every so often, especially when politics gets involved. Okay, anyway, everybody, uh, that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You got both end songs here. Good night, and... Shalom.